And we're live. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Two Abdullahs. We are now on part five of The Epileptic Prophet. You know, I've noticed something. I've noticed that this, this meme of the Prophet Muhammad being epileptic has gone far and wide. Recently, I went to an event with the ex-Muslims of Toronto, and we were having dinner, and people were mentioning in real life who had never met me that, dude, I'm hearing among Muslims now that Muslims are interested in hearing this. The, the evidence is getting harder and harder to ignore. I'm sure many of you are skeptical when you first hear this claim. You think, well, it's also true that Muhammad was actually doing things for his own benefit. But even if he was doing things for his own benefit, that does not exclude the possibility that there was something going on in his brain that gives us a good explanation for some of the things that we see in his life, more so than him just making it up. So we are at the point now where we've done more than, I think, 12 hours or something of content on this topic. If you are not convinced yet, go back and go through all of the episodes and you will see that there is a very strong case here, almost undefeatable case that Muhammad had some sort of temporal lobe epilepsy. Now, today we're going to go through secondary evidence. And uh, Abdullah Gondal, over to you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to part five of the Epileptic Prophet. As discussed in the last part, <clears throat> we are switching gears now towards looking into the cascading effects epilepsy had on Muhammad's behavior and personality, how his personality changed, how he would get angry, his sexuality was affected, his OCD started popping up. So we will go through all of this. And then at the end, we have another section about famous cases uh, that suffer from epilepsy and have achieved uh, greater success in literary and military prowess than Muhammad. Uh, we will also go through his night journey, him screaming in the mosque, him seeing angels all the time, and a bunch of other things uh, regarding his delusions. Uh, but with that said, we're going to open the slides and we're going to get started. Now, one thing we need to remember here that these are secondary observations that you will see in his behavior. So these are not the primary points. You have to keep in mind that you're viewing these uh, in line with his convulsions and his epilepsy that we've discussed in the prior parts. So with this slide, we first start off, we've talked about this uh, earlier as well. Uh, Dr. Dedekrutov gives a little bit of a brief description of changes in personality you might see in people who are suffering from this kind of epilepsy. So he says excessive guilt and hypermoralistic feelings. What does that mean? So Muhammad might feel, you know, if he doesn't do this according to Allah's will, he might be constantly feeling guilty of going to hell. The constant ideation that I might end up in hell or God hates me, God will uh, punish me. Hypermoralism. So a lot of the time you'll see that these people get obsessed with moral issues. And they're obsessed with the problems in the world. We saw this in part one with the guy that was uh, in the video with Dr. Ramachandran, that he was talking about what's wrong with the world, what's right with the world, and deep philosophical issues regarding morality. <clears throat> he then says an obsessionalism may be seen in uh, complex partial seizure patients, uh, compulsive ideas, ritualistic performances. So he's talking about uh, Muhammad's uh, OCD, his prayers, his religious rituals that don't really make sense. Uh, when you think about it, why do you have to pray five times a day? And it's this repeating, bowing, standing up, sitting motion that you have to repeat. Why is he repeating the word or Allah's name 99 times or 33 times? It's very specific. These things, when you start 
plugging them in in the framework of the Apple app, so you start making a lot more sense of this. Uh, then he goes on uh, to say that uh, CPS patients may have a heightened abnormal sense of the personal, so they might also become like uh, they have a grandiose attitude about their own beliefs, you know, like prophethood, uh, being chosen, and then following. He talks about patients have a heightened sense of religiosity. Uh, why does this happen? A religiosity is actually tied to the temporal, but why? We see an interesting thing regarding the theory of mind. Theory of mind is our ability to project mental uh, mental spaces for other people, i.e. somebody else can have another mind, and we can project their thinking somehow. Uh, this ability ties in with the language center, which is also located in the left hemisphere normally in the temporal lobes. Uh, now, we've seen people who have autism or people who have uh, other uh, neurological disorders that affect that region of the brain are less likely to believe in God or angels uh, because they have a different way of viewing uh, how you project the theory of mind. So we can kind of localize that this part of the brain has something to do with religiosity for sure. And uh, we have lots of... Uh, Evidence. We even have the God helmet. Uh, some people can stimulate certain parts of the brain to induce certain sensations. Uh, but that is a little debated. Now, uh, if you want to go into deep, uh, deep dive into the exact changes that you might see, you can look at the chart on the right side. Uh, we saw this uh, last time as well. We're not going to go into details of each everything. Mm. Let me just point out a few of them because we, mm -hmm. I think they're very interesting. Yeah. Um, we, we you already mentioned, for example, um, you know, for example, hypermoralism, hyper guilt, obsession as obsessionalism. Um, we're gonna we're gonna discuss hypergraphia as well, right? Can mm -hmm. you tell us what that means? So hypergraphia is something that pops up in a lot of people with the schizophrenia and epilepsy. It's uh, the tendency to express your thoughts. Uh, in either writing, drawing, poetry, it could be written or spoken. Uh, but yeah, this if this is also tied up with the the language center again, with the temporal lobes. So if you have seizures that affect that part of the brain, then you're you're gonna come up with these extensive uh, treaties of writing. And we'll see in some cases where, in fact, the world's record holder for most books written is L. Ron Hubbard, who was diagnosed as a schizophrenic and was founder of Scientology, right? Or one of the most decorated scholars in literary, literature right now and history of religion, Karen Armstrong. Right? She's also suffering from temporal epilepsy. So we'll see some amazing cases like Lil Vane, uh, Danny Glover, and uh, a lot of contemporary people that have been confirmed to be epileptic. Uh, and then lots of uh, historical cases. And we have one more point for Farid to be refuted. And <laughs> yeah. But keep uh, in mind, these personality changes will be very visible to you. Uh, and you, as we go along, they become very obvious. Yeah. And um, one of the interesting points the other, that we, we didn't talk about was humorless, humorlessness. Mm -hmm. How Muhammad used to always say, oh, you guys laugh too much. You know, you need to be more serious. Whoever laughs, it deadens the heart. Uh, if you knew what I knew, you would weep much and laugh little. The the theme, most of these altered sexual interest, aggression, anger, a lot of these seem to fit incredibly well. 
with mm-hmm. the persona of Muhammad as recorded in the Sahih Hadith and in the Sirah. And just to get one thing out of the way before we go any further, um, someone might ask, and this is something that comes up a lot, how is it that you guys are quoting Hadith, but you don't believe in Hadith? Like you're not Sunni, you don't believe that all the Hadith are true, you don't believe some of these things. And what we are doing is we are going based on, from our perspective, the mythology. The creation of Muhammad that Sunni Muslims and some Shia Muslims, of course, as well, because we do go through some Shia sources, believe in. So we are we are showing based on your own sources that you accept. This are, this is the inevitable conclusion. This is what you have to accept that, like, based on your own preserved, recorded sayings. And, and the other thing to point out is that many of these you know, um, hadith, there's no, there could be no good reason to record it unless it was true. In the seventh century, for someone to record that this man was hearing ringing bells and he was foaming at the mouth and he was, you know, all the things that the, the, the too specific and the, the not points of theology that would, you know, improve Muhammad's case. The like matter of fact, things that they believed were they were witnessing a revelation and they were witnessing god's revelation on this man so it's not even like you know you can hold certain things in suspect when they're supernatural if someone is saying you know we saw muhammad flying in the sky or something like that then of course you you would be like "Hmm, that's interesting that's you know (laughs) that you're trying to prove a point of jesus walking on water you know water coming from his hand you know all, all of these supernatural things okay you would be like okay that's probably made up but when it comes to things like foaming at the mouth and things that are so directly connected to temporal lobe epilepsy you know you you probably should accept that this is true because it's not being used to prove any theological point right so mm-hmm. it's a matter of fact things to keep in mind yeah Shall so continue, or do you want to add anything to that just want to add like again this is not like this any big conspiracy or the jewish <laughs> zionist people have gone together with the illuminati finding or making this up like samir said these are all sourced almost exclusively from Islamic sources, right? So all of this that you're seeing, these four or 500 slides, most of the stuff that you find here is sourced from Islamic scholars, their writings, their books. Like you said, it doesn't make sense for them to make their prophet look like an epileptic, right? Um, but yeah, we're going to move on and let's see what we have in store next. All right, so we are going to be at the uh, section about anger. Now, this section is going to be interesting where we're going to look at a lot of Muhammad's unstable behaviors or him getting angry for no reason or having erratic bouts of anger, his face turning red like a pomegranate for trivial issues or for issues that you shouldn't be reacting like this. And that's what we're going to point out, that this guy was turning red way too much to the point where no normal person should be doing or getting this angry this often. So we're going to start off firstly with Dr. Ali Sina. He's going to talk about the narcissism of Muhammad. So he's a psychologist, I believe. And after that, we're going to get right into the thick end of things. Why a narcissist will not obey rules? That's, that's the characteristic of narcissism. So they, they feel themselves above any rule? They don't feel to be bounded by any authority. They don't want to be recognized. They don't want to recognize any authority. They are rebellious towards authorities. And so they think they are the authority. And they create, yeah, they create an imaginary fictitious authority 
and exact that authority and order. So everyone else must obey them, but they obey no, no one. He, in many cases, says that I am a servant of Allah. I obey Allah. But Allah is in his pocket. Allah is his own invention. And Allah changes his rules for him anytime he wants. So it's basically a convenient tool that he has created. And he says, okay, my alias now says this and changes his rules and laws whenever he wants it. But of course, he couldn't possibly say that's me. You have to obey me. He says, you obey Allah and his messenger. Go and rob people, bring the money to Allah and his messenger. I know that people are smart to know that Allah didn't have any need for those loots taken from the poor Arabs. All of that went to Muhammad. The company of Allah and his messenger and Muhammad, is CEO, was a convenient tool for the people to be confused. But it was all Muhammad. Right on. So that's a very important point that when you think about it, if Allah isn't there, isn't real, Muhammad is using the character Allah that he's created to exert his influence upon people, right? So when you think about verses like uh, Surah Imran comes up to mind, that where if you love Allah, obey me and Allah will love you. So Muhammad creates these, these weird situations where you, if you want to be close to God, you got to listen to me. If you piss me off, God's going to be pissed off with you. You create this weird power dynamic in the religion itself where you end up having a blind obedience to the Prophet. And that is how Muhammad would then exert his influence. Uh, but that is a very important point that we need to keep in mind. Uh, with convenient revelations, uh, it comes up again and again. Now, one thing we need to remember is the convenient revelations are not almost always intentionally forged or Muhammad is actively making them. It is literally a delusion in his mind or his thought process is so confusing that he will come up with it thinking it's Gabriel telling him to do this or that. Uh, and that's what we got to keep in mind. His lingering thoughts affect the revelation. Uh, with that aside, we're going to get into the angry bits. Now, <clears throat> right on, we have angry and ripping curtains. So on the left side, we see Sahih al-Bukhari, the prophet, Aisha is narrating, the prophet entered upon me while there was a curtain having pictures of animals in the house. His face got red with anger, and then he got hold of the curtain and tore it into pieces. Such people as paint these pictures will receive the severest punishment on the day of resurrection. Do you guys not see this as a little bit of an overreaction? A it's weird, point? yeah. Yeah. So wild. Same. Same I mean, pictures of uh, animals on curtains can be quite beautiful. It's kind of weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's weird, strange thing to get mad at. And it's interesting because historical humans like the Last Scout cave arts and all that, they <laughs> draw pictures of animals and stuff. That's true. Right? Yeah. So I don't know. This idea, the whole idea that you shouldn't draw pictures and Allah will ask you to bring the picture back to life on the Day of Judgment. And if you can't, you'll be thrown in hell. Is weird on its own and it probably ties into his paranoia about idol worshiping right mm -hmm. yeah uh, although he's the biggest idol of all <laughs> <laughs> right on so now we're gonna go up to the next uh next slide uh another thing we notice with muhammad is uh, we, we see that he would yell a lot with anger right so jabir said that when the god's messenger preached his eyes became red his voice rose and his anger became violent 
so that he was like one warning an army is saying, right? And then in the right side, we see Bulugh al-Mahram and he says the same thing. When the Prophet delivered a khutbah, his eyes would become red, his voice rose and his anger would become intensified as if he was warning about somebody coming to attack them. The point I'm trying to get to is when Muhammad is talking, he gets so violent, so angry, so worked up. How many people do you know that happens this with? Like, like you're screaming in the mosque. I thought you're supposed to be calm in the mosque. You know, the khutbah, this guy's screaming, he's yelling, his eyes are red, his face is red. <laughs> you know, it's verse- interesting. It, it says, um, the second hadith says, whenever he delivered a khutbah. I don't know if that means all the time. Ooh. It sounds like it in English anyways. Right? Yeah, yeah, so that means like every khutbah will be him screaming and yelling, right? Now, who does this sound similar to? We'll go to the next slide. Uh, just a fair it, warning. By the way, it's interesting that it says um, it, he was so screaming, you know, Muhammad Said in the chat was saying it over exaggerating. This hadith says it was as if he was warning that an enemy is about to attack. Like, that's like, holy shit. Severest, yeah. That's like, you know, mad, wild shouting. Like, okay, someone's about to kill you. Like, okay, if someone's about to kill me, I would be like, you know, you know, wild. And th- that's what it's saying. <laughs> well, Muhammad Hijab is following uh, the Sunnah of Muhammad. I'm seeing. But the, mo- the more Sunnah of Muhammad is this guy. Now, uh, volume, just beware, it might blow your ears. But you got to watch this guy yelling to understand what Muhammad might have sounded like. And when you see this and you project this on the prophet, you realize, okay, something was not okay with Muhammad. But I'll shut up now and you watch uh, this guy. Hellfire will want to destroy the enemies of Allah. Hellfire will want to destroy the sinners, the innovators, the disbelievers. Hellfire will want to swallow them, roast them, toast them, break them, shake them, crush them. Hellfire will want to annihilate them because hellfire is a slave of Allah and it has ghayra. It has this, 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 this jealousy. How dare you disrespect Allah? How dare you disobey? So on that day, when you're there standing in front of hellfire, the way it will swallow, the way it will take you, the way it will absorb you. Brothers, that's not a day to play with. That's not a beast you want to play with. All right. <laughs> so the whole point of that was Muhammad's yelling and screaming would be more like Dava man and less like a Yasser Qadi lecture, okay? And that says a lot where Muhammad is just, just this crazy religious guy screaming on top of the line. You understand what I'm trying to say. <laughs> huh. All right. So another hadith we were talking about uh, mentioned earlier by uh, Samir that Muhammad wouldn't be smiling a lot, right? Like if you smile more, your hearts would be dying and stuff. So here's another one. It was narrated by Ali or Azubay, the messenger fellow. So he says, if he had just recently met with Gabriel, he would not smile until Gabriel had departed from him. So Gabriel being around him makes him not want to be happy, which is an interesting, uh, weird anomaly. Uh, But with that said, we are going to go to the next one. Now, this is the red face. Now we start his face turning red. Uh, When he came to ask for some camels from the Sadqa, the messenger of Allah, was so angry that the anger showed in his face. One way in which anger could be recognized in his face was that his eyes became red. Then he said, this man asked, blah, 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 blah. 
his eyes would become red, his face would become red. This is a huge uh, anger response. Like you shouldn't be getting this angry this fast. And okay, if it was once or twice Muhammad got angry, we'd be like, okay, yeah, you know, like some things people people have a hard time. But when you have so many narrations over and over and over again, then you start to notice that the personality of the person. He's it's, looks, it's like that. It's like those memes with the like the wings popping out and the guys like. Uh, <laughs> uh, but now we're gonna go to the next one. So we are at slide two eighty two. This one is about his face turning red like a pomegranate. The professor fella and his companion are disputing about the divine decree. Now notice that the religious stuff pisses him off the most, and it's some always some really trivial stuff. And it was as if pomegranate seeds had burst on his face, i.e. turned red because of anger. He says, have you been commanded to do this or were you created for this purpose? And he was mad that there, it's a religious debate that they're having about what's, what's allowed or not or something. And Muhammad's face is red his, uh, with like pomegranate seeds. You know, it's funny because uh, divine decree Qadr and Qadr is one of the most confusing topics of all that to this day muslims you know are puzzled by it's like it's like a very normal thing to debate about mm-hmm. right exactly it's always like with this is always an ongoing discussion that like did allah create us for hell knowing we're gonna go to hell There's do we have free will is it allah's you know allah's everything's the will of allah so you know it's exactly. a challenge <laughs> it's a challenging topic yeah and it seems like he got really mad about that interesting yeah right? pomegranate seed had burst (laughs) (laughs) it's a very explicit or specific detail they're putting i don't know how (laughs) all right the next one's even funnier where because you're saying like he got mad about religious questioning and stuff so that's what happens the next step thing is in slide 283 a bedouin went to the prophet and asked him about picking up a lost thing he further asked he asked a few questions to muhammad the bottom three lines what about a lost camel on that, the face of the prophet became red with anger and said, you have nothing to do with it. It has its feet, the water reserves, it can go drink it again, water, whatever. So again, uh, this is Muhammad being angry because somebody asked him too many questions. Now, the next slide, he turns... Well, let's, 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 let's elaborate on this a little bit. Why, why is he getting... So I, I, is this about someone losing something in the haram and you're not allowed to... Well, what's the issue here with making? I don't understand. Why is he getting so mad over that? Okay, obviously, if you lost, you know, a small thing, okay, whatever. But if you lost an animal, a sheep, that's like a big amount of money to lose. And mm-hmm. if you lost a camel, like that's probably even worse. Like you could mm-hmm. die. It, it, this is a desert. So why is he getting so mad over this? Isn't that like a fair question to ask? Like, right? Strange, I right? No. <laughs> now let's see what happens next. So here we have. Zayd al-Khalid report that uh, Zayd there came Khalid. to uh, Allah's messenger person and the rest of the hadith is the same. His face became red, his forehead too, and he felt annoyed and made an addition after the verse. It's the same hadith from before, but he's adding more to it. So his face becomes red, his forehead becomes red, and he's feeling annoyed. Okay. On the right side, we see about a find, and then same thing about stray camels. Muhammad became his face. Um, sorry, the messenger of Allah became angry so much so that his cheeks became red, or the narrator is doubtful that his face became red. So his cheeks, his forehead, his eyes, 
he's turning red like a tomato everywhere at this point. <laughs> All right, now we have the next slide. Again, um, if you question Muhammad's authority or ask him too many questions, he's gonna turn red. Okay, it's like the green, the red version of Hulk or something. <laughs> On the day the Prophet divided and distributed amongst the people, this one's important. This is where they challenge Muhammad's authority and question his division. So I went to him while he was with a group of prof uh, people, and I secretly informed that. Whereupon the prophet became so angry that his face became red, and he said, May Allah bestow mercy on Moses, for he was hurt more than that, yet he remained patient. The distribution in which the pleasure of Allah has not been sought. So some people, some companions of Muhammad, were not happy with how Muhammad is distributing the war booty, right? Or the loot they've captured from, the, from their campaigns. So because he was questioned on it, Muhammad got so angry that his face became red uh, because, again, they're challenging his authority or implying that he's not being fair. Uh, in the next hadith, we see a very weird anomaly where somebody spitting makes Muhammad's face turn red. So um, what I want to say, I'm just going to point out one thing because um, just to clarify, it's good that we have Muslims you know, in the chat like kind of pointing out things. Just keep in mind, guys, this is not we're not saying this is the only thing. You have to look at the full picture. This is one part of the argument. Mm. No one's saying Muhammad got angry all the time, so therefore he has epilepsy. Yeah, don't it's straw man. It's part of a bigger picture, right? So mm -hmm. just keep that in mind. Exactly. Here, this one's interesting. Uh, the Messenger of Allah saw some sputum in the Qibla of the Masjid, and he became so angry that his face turned red. Then a woman from the Ansar went and scratched off and put some perfume in his place. The messenger of Allah then said, how good this is. So this is just very weird. Like if somebody, if you find some spit on the ground in the mosque, like it's okay, just clean it up. Like it's not the end of the world. But like for your face to turn red and then freak out over something so trivial, this is what we were trying to point out, that he freaks out over things that you shouldn't be freaking out over. And they're mostly a lot of times of religious nature. Right? So the kindling that Dr. Ramachandran mentioned in the first part comes to mind. The deep emotional deepening. Next Bro, one. <laughs> <that Wa inneka laala? laughs> you look at Muhammad, you find the best of manners. So we should all be getting angry with our faces red. I mean, this is fine, right? <laughs> All right, so now we have slide 287 on the day of all the messenger follow. So he saw now this might be a second incident of phlegm because there's a different person or some differences in the uh, narration. Or yeah, because that one's narrated by Anas bin Malik. This is by Ibn Omar. And he was giving a sermon when he suddenly saw phlegm on the wall towards the Qibla direction. So he became angry at people. He then scraped it and sent for saffron and stained with it. He then said, when one of you prays and faces him, he should not spit before him. So, again, weird. Uh, this is the it's second interesting, incident. It's interesting that, um, you know, this is, well, first of all, this seems to be quite a common thing. So maybe there should be classes instead of getting angry. There should be classes on, guys, no spitting. Maybe put mm -hmm. a sign on the wall. Please, no spitting in the mosque. You know what I mean? Red, red sign with a red face that said, don't spit. <laughs> Okay, more red face. What do we have here? So Azubair went to a stream and he's talking to the prophet about water flow. And 
and the prophet's face became red again and it's about irrigation and they have a dispute and then a revelation came by it uh not gonna read the whole thing the point at this it sounds point like gonna... it sounds like he's getting mad because they don't like what he's saying they're not accepting what he's saying un- unconditionally right mm-hmm. like because he's quoting the the verse oh actually the verse was revealed <laughs> in regard to this so May, you know they need to judge by what you say you're the one that needs to tell them what to do because you're the best person with the best character and the best manners and you know best so yeah. they don't even have faith unless you are the one that makes these you know they judge based on what you, he wants to be he wanted to be the one again seems like narcissism right yeah, exactly exactly and i'll come back again uh more and more when we get further on uh but right and, now and we... also these are his close companions right like mm-hmm. Zubair. Mm-hmm. exactly like why is there so many different people noticing his face all with gender and he getting angry <laughs> Yeah, let's go to slide number 289. Do as Muhammad says or red face. <laughs> Whenever Allah's apostle ordered the Muslims to do something, he used to order them deeds which were easy for them. They said, oh, Allah's apostle, we are not like you. Allah has forgiven your past and future sins. So Allah's apostle became angry and it was apparent on his face. He said, I am the most Allah fearing and know Allah better than all of you do. So another thing here we are seeing when you challenge Muhammad's authority, he gets irritated or annoyed. This was brought up by Dr. I believe Abbas and Dr. Dedekur because they become irritable because these people, their delusions are not based on evidence or logic or reasoning, right? So as soon as you will challenge them, they don't know how to reply. So what? how do they mask it with anger, religious threats? You'll go to hell if you don't believe me. You're questioning me. Exactly. And this is the point we're trying to drive home. Uh, another hadith we have <laughs> so this is interesting there was an, a, a whole incident where Muhammad had apparently allegedly divorced his wife for a whole month people were unsure he secluded himself in the top house and there's verses revealed about it and he would do this a lot like Surah Tahrim, Surah Ahzab a uh, few times he would use Quran for his own personal marital affairs to be settled but anyways, Omar mentioned that to the prophet. Why did you like divorcing the wife during the menses? And Muhammad's face again became angry. Again, like at this point, we're just trying to show that his anger is not a normal reaction to questions. It's kind of becoming like a personality trait now. And uh, I mean, I I mean, I feel sorry to say, but this, you know, okay, you're not supposed to divorce your wife during menses. But who made the stupid rule that you can just divorce her by saying talak in the first place? (laughs) The system is flawed. So you're getting mad at the guy for losing his shit because he's human. And your shitty, flawed system messed up. And you're getting mad at the individual Mm -hmm. instead of fixing the system. (laughs) Why not just make it invalid during Menzies? Problem solved. Well, why not come up with a better system that's yeah. based on like you know like consultation waiting periods like modern divorce law you know <laughs> exactly now we have next like uh we have like uh apostle was asked how many of these do you have i i have quite a few for the anger one we only have till 294 so four more okay. to go <laughs> okay 
291, Abdullah's apostle was asked about things which he disliked. And when the people asked too many questions, he became angry. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, Sarah mentioned this in the chat. Yeah. yeah. And when Omar saw the signs of anger on the face of Allah's apostle, he said, we repent to Allah. So yeah, they knew even that getting Muhammad angry, we have to ask Allah, for, oh, Allah, forgive us. We got your prophet so angry. Oh, my God. <laughs> mm, interesting. So now we have a clear pattern that mm -hmm. he doesn't like being questioned i wonder why he didn't like being questioned he is the gateway he is the medium to he's the only medium to god why she why would he get mad mm -hmm. he's the only way for people to connect to the creator he should be happy to asking questions i mean unless he's a fraud <laughs> that mm -hmm. is <laughs> you know, because the more you answer questions, the more likely you're going to contradict yourself and then you're going to exactly. have to uh, forget or actually cancel or abrogate something that you said last week because it no longer, you know, it doesn't fit anymore, right? So, yeah. <laughs> Another, this one just is just an interesting, weird one I found where uh, it was narrated by Aisha that the messenger of Allah became angry with Safiya for something and Sophia said oh Aisha can you make the messenger of Allah be pleased with me and I will give you my day so you know Muhammad would have so many wives and he spend a day or a night with one of them and yeah she just whatever happened I'm just saying that this could just be a marital dispute and whatever and a regular issue the point is that in line with all the other hadith and him getting angry I was just going to mention this there as well uh then we have slide number 293. Hold on uh, a second. Sorry, yeah. I just I'm just pondering on what it says here. She basically gave up her night or day with Muhammad in order to make up to him, right? Is that mm -hmm. the deal? That's okay. what it's and, like, and Muhammad yeah. Muhammad basically was okay with this. So he basically even though he only saw her what once in I don't know how many Maybe. nights. Yeah week he's seeing his wife once a week and he got mad at her so in order to make it up to him she's like okay how about you just don't see me at all and this is like a good thing and she and a loving husband who, who wants to you know according to the quran has to treat all his wives fairly was okay with that just not seeing her like she, he's, he's not gonna see her for one week i mean isn't the hadith that a muslim should not be mad with his brother for more than three days yeah 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 or like but yeah <laughs> yeah you're supposed to make up with your brother but in this hadith, he's mad with his so mad with his wife that he's he doesn't even want to see her for less than a week. And then even then it's gonna be what two weeks till he sees her again. How is this a healthy marriage? Oh, yeah, no, there it's I don't know exactly what his dynamics was the wife day day <laughs> distribution because he had what, eleven or nine wives at one time. Yeah. Some hadith said go to them one night to go have sex with all of them. Sometimes it's like a day appointed, but like yeah, if yeah, there's yeah. eleven or nine wives, they're only seven days in a week, right? So yeah. Yeah, and then it was a Hafsa gave up her her day or something for Aisha or some something like that. Yeah. Anyways, we're we're getting <laughs> off traffic, so we'll yeah. continue. All right, back to uh, red face man. All right, so we see Muhammad's face turn red again. Uh, Al Abbas entered upon Allah's messenger in a state of anger while I was, oh, sorry, Al Abbas bin Abdul Mutlib. The messenger fellow, what is with us and the Quraysh? Whenever they meet one another. It is with glad faces. And when they meet us, they meet us with other than that. He said, so the messenger of Allah became angry until his face reddened. So now he, the 
companion said that, you know, the Quraysh, when they hang out with each other, they're all like super chill, having fun. But when they see us, they're always like gloomy and they don't like how they're not excited to see us. Right. And then Muhammad just got angry and his face turned red again. And then uh, he says, whoever harms my uncle, he has harmed me. And he goes on. Uh, but again, yeah, it's just like weird, more red face. <laughs> and then the last one is very interesting. This is tied to an angel. Why is this interesting? Remember the hadith where the puppy was hidden under the bed and Muhammad was like pacing back and forth. And he was like, where is my friend Gabriel? He's not here yet. Let's read what it says. Aisha reported that Gabriel had made him a promise with Allah's messenger to come at a definite hour. That hour came, but he did not visit him. And in his hand was a staff. He threw it from his hand. Like he had a stick and he threw it. He was so mad that Gabriel didn't come. Now, uh, bottom thinks, same thing, Riyadh Talihin repeating, there was a staff in the hand of messenger. And he threw that stick because he's so angry, agitated that uh, Gabriel's not coming. I want to point out something. Uh, if you have seen this three-episode docu-series, The House of Secrets, on Netflix about the Burari case, I think it's episode two. The guy who was writing the diary, or Lalit, his name, he had dates uh, written down where he would have expected visitations, and he would take mark which day the dad came by to visit and which day didn't. This is very similar to that. Muhammad is expecting Gabriel to come at a certain time or day and he doesn't show up. So Muhammad gets angry and then he back projects this weird delusion where puppies lying under the bed and that take him out. Point here that his him getting agitated over the angel not showing up. This also adds to the idea that he actually did believe that an angel is visiting him or that he did believe his delusions. Otherwise, he wouldn't be getting angry at himself for no reason. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I, I this is an excellent reference because you notice how he's not sure why and then he blames the dog. Mm -hmm. It's like he's trying to figure it out. He can't make sense of it. You know, he's trying to reassure himself. Uh, you know, Allah's Allah doesn't break his promise. The angels don't break their promises. I know the angel is going to come. Like he's kind of like he's talking himself into feeling better about it. Mm -hmm. I know God's not a liar. I know God's not a liar. God's going to take care of me. Yeah, I know I'm going to be okay. Oh, wait, there's a dog under there? That's why. Mm -hmm. That's why. Aisha, it's all your fault. Your curtains with animals and your dead puppy. That's It's all your fault he didn't come. Now I know why he didn't come. Makes perfect sense. I mean, now in his mind, he's, he's figured it out. It's because yeah. of the dog. <laughs> it's not when, Allah's not mad at me. Gabriel's not breaking his promise. It's a damn dog. <laughs> what's what's funny is like it, it doesn't even add up logically. Like, okay, well, if there's dogs anywhere, the angels never come. Well, there's dogs on the fucking planet Earth. Don't visit this planet. <laughs> what's the what's the radius of the the angel <laughs> defensive mechanism? Yeah, yeah. Like 10 meters. You know, Nine you know, Israel has a as an air dome, right? The air dome defense. It's like a virtual dome that up to a certain range rockets can reach. So dogs must have a virtual dome for protection from angels as well. <laughs> you should put, teach this in, in in Islamic uh, science classes. What 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 at what maximum distance with a forty five degree angle can the angels enter when the dog is a <laughs> in the distance of a prophet? No. Uh, another thing is this delusion didn't end here. This is what led to him telling, kill all the dogs. And then oh he started killing God. all the dogs in Medina. But then some people are like, 
yo, like you shouldn't be killing all the dogs because we use them for our sheep and stuff. Right? So he's like, okay, kill this the black dog for the black dog is the devil. So when you actually sit down and think about this whole incident, you realize, holy shit, this guy was off the rails a little bit. He literally invented the whole sinophobia where this Muslims hating dogs, killing dogs because his imaginary friend didn't visit him because the puppy was under his bed. Think about it. If that and is the not, puppy's dead. It's 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 dead. <laughs> the dog's not a dog anymore. It's just an, it's just a dead corpse. It's it's not like unless even the dead. And then I would ask, at what point during the rotting period does the angel defense mechanism wear off? Because apparently, <laughs> even, even the dead dog is still protecting from angels. Wait, I have another issue. The dog's soul. How is the malakal mouth gonna pull it out if he's a dog? <laughs> Somebody on Twitter, I forgot, one of our friends, uh, mutual followers, was like, uh, checkmate Malikal Moat, uh, I have a dog, you can't get me. <laughs> maybe maybe Malikal Moat is, uh, maybe only Gabriel and Michael, Mikhail, uh, are, are like, you know, have to stay away from dog. Well, isn't it, like, it almost seems like this is like some evil spirit, because you, you know, you keep spirits away. Dogs are protected, right? Dog is a mm-hmm. man's best friend, as they say. Um... Yeah, I don't want to. I I want to tell you about the dog I have, but anyways, well, I don't want to get too distracted with that. <laughs> another thing is like dogs are used these days to sense the onset of seizures. So unless the dog, oh, was really? like, yeah, yeah, seizure dogs are very common, like service dogs. Oh wow, they can detect the seizure onset by their smells because your body will start releasing pheromones, hormones, and stuff. It can detect those. It can, yeah, they're very cool. They can like uh, sit on top of you while you're having a seizure, and then they make sure that you don't choke. They'll turn your face to the side. Lots of things, wow. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. They're lifesavers. Like, no joke. They will literally save your life. Dogs are literal lifesavers, right? Uh, someone, mm-hmm. Salex T says, um, and two angels will let you good and bad. These can't visit either. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sure, they're always here, right? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> what? None of this makes sense when you think about None it. None of this, this makes sense. It's all delusional. The guy just created this weird, complex, delusional mythology in his head. Yeah, uh, that's what it ended up being Islam, but yeah and you can't you can't take this out of islam this is sunni islam is this this is part of sunni islam you you don't like this part you don't want to believe this part there's no logical way for you to remove these hadith that are part of the core collections of sunni narrations i mean there are some ways to do it but at the end of the day you're just gonna end up picking and choosing and then why even bother with it just follow humanism you know Exactly. Another interesting thing that popped into my mind, the hadith where Muhammad said, the strong man is not the one who can fight, but the strong man is the one who can control his anger. Oh. The wrestler hadith. <laughs> yeah. And he's the one having a lot of issues with his own anger. So do you think that's a projection of his own personality or his own, like, being projected out as a, as a form in a form of a hadith? Maybe. Probably. Oh, wow. Or he, Sorry, go ahead. Or like him constantly like getting uh, getting angry, right? It could be uh, a contradiction with his own statement where he's not being able to control his own <laughs> anger. So he's not the strong man. <laughs> yeah. Um, Yusuf Zai is saying, I'm going to send this to my dean in uh, Medina. And my dear brother, Ben says, don't forget to like the video, beautiful people. Please, please. Thank you. Thank All right. You. Should we continue? Yeah, yeah. We're going to get into the anxiety and paranoia of Muhammad. Do you want to, can I just go through a few comments? 
Yeah, one hundred percent. Let's, take Let's see what comments questions. we have. Um, who told you Sunni Islam is Islam of Allah? Okay, so if you're a Quranist or uh, I don't know, I mean Shia Islam, same thing. I say Sunni because we're, we're talking about Sunnism. There's no difference. I mean, same same issues with Shia Islam. Would you agree? Yeah, very very similar. I mean, it's the same. Fundamentally, boils under the same book, right? Core book, core beliefs <laughs> are similar. The delusional, the main delusional framework is the same in both cases. It's just that the spin-offs are different. So you yeah. have you're gonna have the base characters like Allah, Muhammad, Gabriel, right? And then the way they spin it off is different. But uh, no, so, I, go ahead, sorry. So I think like it's it's pretty stable. I mean, even in the uh, the Shia uh, Sira, like the earliest Sira still we have is gonna be Ibn Isaks or maybe Waqidi's book Kitab al Maghazi, right? Shias will then extrapolate details or their own uh, inferences from that same source as different theological ideas from it but generally the earliest seer that they also use is uh, ibn Isaac. they have their own narrations where they do contradict but no uh a sunni islam is the predominant has been the predominant type of islam that have been practiced all over the world for 14 15 centuries so functionally if we are to criticize islam it'd be starting off with sunni orthodox islam because that's the most yeah. common one yeah um, yeah yeah, and um, if you follow Quranism, is up to you. It's like you make it up as you go. Um, Yusuf Zai is a graduate of Medina, and he's uh, going to send us to his dean. Oh, wow. Back in Medina. So, yeah, oh, wow. that's, that's awesome, man. I'm that's like, crazy. yeah, that's great. Um, no, Muhammad Saeed, dogs were not used to detect seizures 1,400 years ago. People have trained dogs and, and I want to say evolved, but basically bred dogs for very specific purposes, including smelling drugs mm -hmm. you know if i don't want to get into a side point but basically dogs are one of the best examples of evolution in action because we are using what's called artificial selection meaning we choose the genes that we want to emphasize and you have dogs that they have like a thousand times i don't know the number but like you know a hundred times the sense of smell as like another dog they can like 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 tiny little traces of drugs they can smell and you can train them to save lives. Obviously you can train them to dogs. Are the Like we, we co-evolved with dogs, dogs. Part of the reasons why humans survived is because of dogs. Man's best friend is, is for the last, I don't know how many thousand years, you know, we've took the wolves, we tamed them, we use them for protection. And I said, I don't want to talk about my dog, but I do. We have a dog and you know, he hears a noise. And he puts on, he's, he's a cute little puppy, but he puts on his like, his deep voice. He's like, like he's, he's, he's instinct, his instincts come out to protect. And, you know, it's just like, um, um, this comment says, uh, dogs are a good judge of character. Maybe that's why I didn't like it. <laughs> I think he just yeah. came. I, I don't know what, why he got fixated on dogs. Why would he get fixated on dogs? It's, so it's weird. like I said, you have to, to view Muhammad personality as you're talking about not a normal person because if you start viewing it as a normal person you'll have expectations of behavior that a normal person would do when you view him as an epileptic then you're like okay well i mean it's delusions that's the answer a lot of it just doesn't make sense for the sake of it just doesn't make sense right uh but here samir is showing you what seizure dogs are and there's uh ted if you want to look into it in the bottom, it'll tell you that they even break fall. So if you're about to fall, the dog will come behind you and hold you from falling so you don't get injured. And Man, as you can see, these beautiful. are 
Yes, it is. And if you have seen videos, like I've seen a video where the person was seizing, the dog vent sat on them, made sure to turn their face on the side so they don't choke on their own saliva or puke. Uh, Damn. Wow. Alarm systems, they'll alert other relatives. Uh, wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. Oh, man. Uh, Radha, who is a supporter of the channel, says he killed dogs. So merciful of a prophet. You could touch them and make them pure. What's his motive for killing God's creation? I think the same thing you said. Yeah. It's None of this makes sense. It's, you know, um, yeah. I mean, you can't explain crazy things, right? Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, um, yeah, it's there's a rabies. They, they, some one person once mentioned that there was a rabies outbreak in Medina. And that's why they started killing the dogs. And Muhammad's way to explain it was that the uh, Allah was dog. causing this dog Satan thing as a mask or thing for rabies. Yeah, that's what his idea was. He didn't understand how diseases spread and whatnot. Right. But <laughs> this, this is a good question. I don't know about this. Um, Do they have raised beds in those days? I have no idea what type of beds they had. No uh, yeah, yeah, honestly, the he would. I've seen Hadith, he'd lay on a mat or some palm leaves at times. Mm -hmm. I don't know about bed and pillows and stuff. There's a Hadith where they had to put pillows under his head while he was convulsing during a, a seizure. So, a uh, Medina friend uh, says it's sad because Arabia used to have many dogs, and unfortunately, now you don't find any dogs in mm -hmm. Makkah. In Karachi, Pakistan, they kill like thousands of dogs, like they pile them up and they just like that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's sad, yeah, but there's a lot of sinophobia. Sign in fact, in Islam, most Sunnis will tell you dogs are haram to be pets or be around you unless they're guard dogs for a very specific reason. Uh, and that's what it was my whole life growing up. We weren't allowed to have pet dogs. You can have cats, yes, because Abu Huraira had the cats, <laughs> but, uh, but not the dogs. Uh, yeah. And this is interesting because, like, how he says about dogs, think about it. He talks about the braying of the donkeys when he sees the devil or something, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So, and the roosters, like, he sees the angel, something, something like that. Like, so he has a lot of delusions with cows and wolves talking. So he has a few animals that he does. Uh, mm, interesting. This actually is an interesting comment. It says, actually, the prophet wasn't the one who introduced the concepts of dogs being impure. In pre-Islamic Arabia, there was also already a concept of dogs being impure. He just legalized it. Mm -hmm. This would be kind of like, for example, I grew up in a culture where number 13 is bad luck. And then I make it part of the religion that you cannot mm -hmm. have 13 something. Or, for example, black cats are bad. I mean, this is a common superstition. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a black cat and black cats are lovely. Yeah. But I made it like black cats are evil. You have to kill the black cats. It's kind of like <laughs> taking something from your culture and making it legalized, which is exactly like the black dog is the devil, like Muhammad said. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah maybe that that's a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. All right. So I guess let's continue. Yeah, let's... let's get to the anxiety and paranoia section of the thing. So here what we're going to talk about is Muhammad, because when you have epilepsy, you have a lot of coexisting uh issues with mental health, anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, getting anxiety or anger or overly triggered over some specific issues. Uh, but uh, one thing I need to point out that Muslims that make fun of uh, my friend, apostate prophet or anybody else for this, just and remember that if you are joking about somebody having anxiety attacks, and if that's some weird clutch for you guys, then remember that Muhammad, your prophet, had anxiety attacks as well. Uh, I'm not making fun of it for him for that, but I'm just trying to point out that please be consistent if you're trying to make fun of other people. Just remember that your prophet mm -hmm. was in a in a way worse state. So what is it? Slide number 296. 
Right on. Uh, did I miss a slide? Uh, 297. Yeah. 297. Oh, sorry, I missed one. Oh, sorry, I missed one. Okay. Right yeah. on. So we have Sahih al-Bukhari. Whenever a strong wind blew, anxiety appeared on the face of the Prophet, fearing the wind might be a sign of Allah's wrath. Think about this. Normally, people see wind, nice weather, and oh, rain's coming. People are happy. This guy gets sad and depressed because, again, kindling, everything turns about religion. The guilt we talked about earlier, like Dr. Dedekur, with personality changes, he's taking everything to, everything takes a religious undertone, right? And he's anxious. Now, in the next slide, the clouds will make him anxious. So there's wind, there's clouds, there's rain, there's solar eclipses, like, Uh, (laughs) every normal experience that humans have exactly so Sahih Muslim book of prayer of the rain Aisha the wife of the prophet saying whenever there was uh, when there was on any day windstorm or dark clouds its effects could be read on the face of the messenger of Allah and he moved forward in backward in a state of anxiety and when it rained it was delighted Aisha said, I asked him the reason of this anxiety. And he said, I was afraid that it might be a calamity that might fall upon my ummah. And when he saw rainfall, he was, he said, it is a mercy of Allah. The guy is paranoid. He sees rain and clouds. He's like, oh my God, the world's about to end. The ummah is about to end. God is sending a calamity. It's just rainfall. In, in a desert? Yeah. It's blissful. Oh, you could be happy. <laughs> and uh, I understand in walking. Bangladesh. I mean, I understand in Bangladesh. Okay, you see the rain clouds. They have floods, mm-hmm. but in the desert, <laughs> right? And an interesting thing you clearly see, he started moving forward and backward in a state of anxiety. So he's literally being so anxious, he t- turns restless. He's walking back and forth to get to that point of anxiety that takes a lot of uh, thinking in your head or spiraling in your head. Uh, now, on the right side, he see, Aisha says that if the prophet saw a cloud in the sky, he would walk to and fro in agitation, go out and come in, and the color of his face would change, and if it rained, he would feel relaxed. <sighs> so this is pretty interesting. He would go in and out, walk back and forth. He's having a bad anxiety attack almost. And his face is just changing color too, it says. Yeah, so that indicates to me that when you have flushing, your blood pressure is changing, Either he's going red or pale. So it could be either heart rate going up or low. But this is so interesting, right? Wow, yeah. Now, 298, uh, thunder and lightning. And we see again, uh, it's a repeat of the same. Uh, Semester fellow saw a cloud that looked as if it was bringing rain. The color of his face would change. And he would go in and out and walk to and fro. Then if it rain, he would be relieved. This is from Sunan Ibn Majah. So, and then he thinks that the rain's going to kill his people, like the people of Hud or something. And like I said, he's paranoid. He's straight up paranoid at this point, where he literally sees clouds and freaks out. Uh, whenever the wind was stormy, the Prophet of Allah used to say, oh, Allah, I ask thee for what is good in it. Uh, if there was thunder, thunder and lightning, lightning, his color underwent a change, and he went out and in backwards and forwards. And when the rain came, he felt relieved. Uh, yep. So he's basically. It would explain why he was more believable. If he's he's sincerely acting out this paranoid anxiety of like the world coming to an end every single time it rains. Mm -hmm. The people around him must have been like, holy shit. Like, does he know something we don't know? I mean, of course, now in today's world, we, you know, we understand weather patterns and stuff and we have Mm -hmm. weather models and 
complex mathematical models to you know and satellites and but at that time you know you see some guy freaking out i mean i'm sure some people thought he was just crazy but other people might have seen the sincerity in his freaking out mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and again this adds to the idea that muhammad in fact did end up believing his own self because why would he be acting so weird right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yep yep next slide up we have solar eclipses cause anxiety for muhammad the sun eclipsed during the time of Allah's messenger he stood in great anxiety, fearing that it might be the doomsday. So this guy was straight up having full-blown paranoia. Like he's having doomsday delusion paranoia, where he's literally thinking the world is about to end because the sun got covered, right? And then he came to the mosque, and then he stood up and prayed with the prolonged qiyam, rukufa. he prayed a lot. And these are the signs that Allah sends, blah, blah, blah. But yep, the sun eclipsed. He frightens his servants. So this is just straight up paranoid, delusional thinking being seen right there. Uh, yep. Nothing more to add to this, but yeah, Muhammad was not the sanest guy. Uh, one more thing. Just to, you know, this is, this is again, I think this is something worth pausing on. A solar eclipse is something we understand so well today. Pete the Rationalizer made a video which blew me away when I was researching Leaving Islam where he said, we can look up the date that this eclipse happened in Muhammad's life. Mm -hmm. Take that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we can look up when in 632 or whenever, you know, 620, that this particular mm -hmm. eclipse that he saw happened. That That's mm -hmm. wild. There should be no reason to be scared of an eclipse. It's a natural, again, like it's a natural phenomena. It happens so many years to the, you know, to the precise mathematical point that you can download a calendar. Any kid today can tell you when the next eclipse is going to come. Yet 1400 years ago, it's this so-called prophet of God that supposedly predicted the future, supposedly <laughs> didn't even know that this was, you know, it's coming on time. Yep. It's the, it's like a train. Like, okay, next eclipse is coming. Nope. He's scared. He's terrified he's praying until it goes away like guys seriously <laughs> let's continue <laughs> so i was just reading up quickly i did a search like yeah there was like an eclipse in 632 and there was an eclipse 39 years after muhammad's death too so yeah we can see and if it's 632 that's the last year muhammad was alive near his death he was probably like losing his mind more uh but we it's will like and, and look at the look at the explanation <laughs> It's so stupid. <laughs> I'm getting so frustrated just talking about this. Right? Like Allah sends eclipses to frighten his servants. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, we know when the next one's coming and we know when it's, the next one's coming after that for the next 100,000 million yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> so Allah, it doesn't frighten us because we already know it's going to happen. That makes no sense. Holy, yeah. This guy was paranoid and delusional. Like sometimes I'm like when I'm talking to you, you you and the audience brings up points. I'm like, oh shit, even I didn't think of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. That's that's so cool. Okay. Uh, the next slide. Yeah, we're gonna go. So this is about how to uh he's extremely anxious of how to call for prayer, right? So he's and then even his other companion, Abdullah bin Zayd, returned anxiously from there because of the anxiety of the Prophet. So Muhammad's anxiety gave the companion anxiety. And they were just so anxious to how to call for a pair to do that, the That's bells. what I'm saying. Like people around him must have been like, holy shit, look at this guy. He's pissing his pants. I mean, not pissing his pants, but like, yeah. 
<laughs> same right you know. let's go to the next one right okay so now we're gonna get into something very interesting there are hadiths that are repeated again and again where muhammad would randomly run out to the graveyard in the middle of the night because an angel told him to go pray for dead people this was so anomalous that aisha noticed that she would chase and follow him and then caught him uh, but let's start Malik related to me from this guy that uh, she heard Aisha say, The Messenger of Allah, bless him, rose one night and put on his clothes and then went out. I ordered my slave girl, Barida, to follow him. So she'd send like the slave girl to spy on Muhammad. And she followed him until he got to Al-Baqi, the graveyard. He stood near it as long as Allah will, and then he left. Barida arrived back before him and told me, uh, and I did not say anything to him until the morning. And Muhammadan says, uh, yeah, I went out at, uh, at night just to pray for the dead people. On the right side, we see uh, from his mother, Aisha said, well, he got dressed, went out. Uh, he stood near the graveyard and then he left. And he told that to people tomorrow. Now, the next slide, we're going to see more of this. Exactly. That is when he hit Aisha. We're going to get to that one, too. Do normal peep outs, uh, people sneak out to graveyards every other night? Uh, Aisha reported whenever it was her turn to sp spend uh, the night with Messenger of Allah, he used to go to Bucky at the last part of the night and say, may you be safe, O both of the believing people, blah, 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 blah. And then on the right side, we see every time it was her night, he was saved there. He would go out at the end of the night. Assalamu alaikum. So he's saying salam to these dead people to go pray to them at the end of the night. Uh, yeah, this is not normal behavior. And the next slide is when we get to the point where it was too ridiculous. And Aisha, he hit Aisha. He actually hit Aisha. He's also, he's also saying, um, soon we will join you. He's saying, saying to dead people, we're going to be dead soon too. Like this. Yeah. This it, weird man. Now when you think it. This is what I'm trying to tell you. When you actually see his personality, his actions in the bigger picture, you realize this guy was bonkers. Like he was not normal by any sense of the word in our in our times. Uh, so we're going to go to the next slide, 303. And this is the long one. So this one we have to read because we need to understand what exactly happened. Aisha says, uh, shall I not tell you about the prophet? Then she says that when it was my night, he came in, placed his shoes by his feet, laid down in his garment and spread his lower garment on his bed. As soon as he thought that I had gone to sleep, he put his shoes on slowly and picked up his rida slowly. Then he opened the door slowly and went and shut it slowly. Muhammad is trying to sneak out. <clears throat> I put my garment over my head, covered myself, and my Azar. So Aisha's like, you know, I want to see what is he up to. Right? And I set out after him until he came to Al-Baqi. Raised his hands in the graveyard three times and stood there for a long time. Then he left and I left. He hurried and I hurried. He ran and I ran. And I got there before him and entered the house. So Aisha follows Muhammad in a sneak out mission at night. He goes to the graveyard, raises his hands three times and is standing there I don't know, talking, praying for dead people. It's like three, four in the morning, straight up out of a horror movie or something. Like very, very dark. Think about what's going on in this guy's head for him to go to a graveyard at night and do this. And his wife chases him. She, He then starts running and they come back. Okay. Right. I had only just laid down when he came in and said, 
Oh, Aisha, why are you out of breath? <clears throat> and he said, either you tell me or Allah will tell me why you're out of breath. So he blackmails Aisha using religion. Okay. And then she says, oh, Messenger of Allah, may my father and mother be sacrificed for you. I told him the story. Now, Muhammad says, oh, you were the black shape I saw in front of me. And then Aisha said, yes. She then says, he gave me a shove in the chest that hurt me. And he basically, he hits her in the chest. Okay, so if you look at the word that's in the dictionary, this is, uh, he caused her significant or pain in the chest area. Okay, so when you think about Muhammad runs out at night, sneaks out of his house, Aisha follows him. Muhammad get, realizes he got caught. He's mad at Aisha and he pushes her in the chest or hits her in the chest. Okay. You thought that Allah and his messenger would be unfair to you. And then he blackmails her more. So he, and then he says, Jibreel came to me when you saw me leave, but he did not enter upon you because you have taken off your garments. So he called me, but he concealed himself from you. And I answered him, but I concealed it from you. I thought you had gone to sleep and I didn't want to wake you. And I was afraid that you would feel lonely. He told me to go to Al-Baqi and pray for forgiveness for them. This is this is a straight up like a, a crazy guy's like night adventure that happened there. Like, I don't even know what to say. He's running out, praying to dead people in the middle of the night because an angel told him and his wife chases him. He hits his wife, causes her pain. I mean, she's just worried about him. Like, what the hell is going on here? Going out in the middle of the freaking night in the desert. Exactly. That's normal, right? Exactly. Huh. That's the um, just is bizarre. Yeah. Uh, Street Fighter Mo uh, Black Angel said, don't spit out your coffee. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so yeah. he didn't actually know who, who, who it was that was following him. I guess in the dark, you can't really tell. In, in other hadith. There's other hadith you can look him up on Sunnah. And so Aisha was, at first she thought he was cheating on her. He was going to one of his other wives or slave girls at night. So mm. she would send the uh, slave girl to follow him. I made a long post and I have, remember I stream uh, the scandals of Aisha. So I have oh, yeah, hadith yeah. sorted and saved for that. They come up in a very interesting way. And yeah. <sighs> but yeah, it's weird. He runs to the graveyard at night. This one was just, just what the hell was going on in this hadith, right? It's narrated by Jabir. The people saw a fire in the graveyard and they went there. So at night, they saw some fire or some light in the graveyard. They found that the messenger of Allah was in a grave and he was saying, give me your companion. This was a man who used to raise his voice while mentioning the name of Allah. This is apparently Sahih upon the conditions of Muslim. It's been narrated by Abu Dawood in the Kitab of Janais, and it gives the hadith number. And then uh, by Tabrani, and it says, Hakim fi Mustadrak, and it's Sahih. So it's Sahih upon the conditions of Sahih Muslim. So I don't even know what to say. They found Muhammad inside of a graveyard talking to a dead man. Like, what the hell? Yeah, that's weird. Right. Uh, then the last one we have is Muhammad talking to invisible man. So this would happen a lot. Often we see this one where uh, Abbas was with his father and he's talking to Messenger of Allah. There was a man who was with him, conversing with him. And it was as if he was not paying attention to my father. So the father said to me, oh, son, did you not see how your cousin did not pay attention to me? 
I said, oh, my father, he had a man with him who was conversing with. So the father doesn't believe the kid because I'm no, there was no man there. What the hell are you talking about? So he goes back to Muhammad. Like, was there a man? And then they're like, oh, yeah, it was Gabriel. I'm like, okay, sure. The kid confirmed your, that you were talking to the guy. And there's, but the adult that was there clearly saw that you're talking to some invisible being. Uh, but anyways, uh, interesting. Or, or it, was, it could have been Dia Kalbi and Muhammad thought it was Gabriel. <laughs> right on, Sif. Uh, if you... This is another interesting section that's coming up next. Uh, this is going to be really fun. But we, before we get into that, if you mm -hmm. have any questions, uh, we'll take those now. Some comments. Yeah, um, there's there's some comments um, that you know it's it's um, it's it's kind of hilarious. She said there's other hadith that he's talking to dead people after they were killed. Mm -hmm. uh, or the peeing, he could hear dead people in the graveyard and be punished for oh, urinating. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Coco Jasmine said, he says, I see dead people. Yeah, he saw um, a lot of dead people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's not, the, yeah, there's not really any any real questions right now. So okay. um, other than, you know, kind of discussing the, the hitting her. Um, Jen Wallace, Wallace says, isn't this what Sunnis call grave worship and condemn Sufis for doing? Oh, that's I mean, he was talking. He was talking to dead people, and he was praying yeah, for them in the middle of the night. Yeah, going to graves inside graves. I mean, inside graves is like <laughs> really next level weird. I mean, that's like really strange. I don't know. That's, but yeah, let's continue. I think. All right. So, uh, as we know about uh, epilepsy, what it can do and it can cause, it could cause you hypo as in reduced libido or reduced sexual behaviors or hyper, where there's episodes of hypersexuality, right? Or it can cause you altered and weird sexual behaviors as well. Now, this is very well known. You see these uh, things pop up and some people put that 50-50. I think the Geshman syndrome uh, puts that out. Uh, now, what we're going to get to is what happens. So Muhammad... His first, what, 40 years of his life, uh, 50 years of his life, he's married to one woman. He married her at 25. She was 15 years older than him. He's married to her for till the age of 50, 53, until she died. And then as soon as she dies, his uncle dies, his wife dies, the year of depression, he then marries Aisha, Hafsa, and a bunch of other women. In the last 10 years of his life, guys, this guy ended up 18 women, 15 to 18 women he was at one time married to. He then divorced some. He bragged about having sex with 11 of or nine of them in one night. He would talk about, you know, hoodies. But thinking, thinking about this, his thoughts that are sexualized, his hypersexuality showed up in the Quran. Why do we have insane amount of hoodie talk? Big guys, perky tits hoodies. In Surah Yasin and the Tafsir come up that the or something that the people of Jannah will be enjoying themselves. The tafsirs of that say they'll be enjoying themselves deflowering virgins. You see this uh, catastrophic, patently obvious hypersexuality in the literature, and there's no hiding from it. We're going to talk about that, and we'll see how Muhammad uh, was definitely showing classic hypo-hypersexual behaviors, changes in sexual behaviors associated with his type of epilepsy. With that said, we're going to have Dr. Abbas explain it first. And all of men, when they get older, when they get to 50, 
the sexuality gradually becomes just a burden. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it gets to a point in later ages that it is a burden. Mm. Uh, and he did not get married until he was 25. Right. Uh, if he had hypersexuality, uh, it would have been okay for him as a, a young as a young man, man in there to do it because he was a prudent person he waited to get married in a proper way which he did and got him the things that he wanted as an intelligent person would do right. he was that so now suddenly you see a person at that age who is supposed to with all of these problems and so on to go down especially after losing Khadija which was such a big loss. thing for him, yeah, for him it's a big loss for him he got married to two of them at the same time right okay same year right I'm not sure about this you know the dates better was that in there in the year of Hosn yes it was right after Am al Hazn, yeah right yes. in the, the same year okay that's the year of depression right year of depression right getting married to two people right at the age of 50 for a person who did not get married until 25 because he wanted to do it the right way right totally abnormal behavior it shows just how i was saying that the uh, that stimulation of that part of the brain causes that the person does not have control over the senses they begin to lose the control over their instincts have you seen patients with this sickness and they have they changed in their sexual life uh, it always happens but see now it's not 1500 years ago what we do most of the time is that when you think the person is is having uh, seizures you put him on medication seizure medicine medicine and it always works the other way around so the problem that we have is that they have hypersexuality most of the time right we don't see hypersexuality because of the medicines mm. but the issue that there is a significant change in sexual behavior is another yeah. step Wow, eh? so when you have an expert tell you that that's totally abnormal behavior and that his sexual changes were abnormal, and he says it's a stamp. His sexual behaviors are stamped to prove the argument that he probably was suffering from epilepsy. Uh, yeah, why would you marry two women in the year, the year of depression? And it seems like the depression triggered him. Another interesting point is he's saying, why do we see hyposexuality in patients today? Mostly is because they're on seizure medication, anticonvulsants. That means their libidos are low. So uh, that's one of the reasons why. Whereas back in the day of medicines now, there you'll see like it's kind of like a up and down, altered sexuality, hypo and hyper can both come up. And we see that with Muhammad. Uh, but yeah, that is very interesting that he waited till the age of 50. And after 50, he marries 18 women. That mm -hmm. is, like he said, totally abnormal behavior. And one thing I want to point out is, even if he had hypersexuality before 50, because he or because he wasn't in a position of power, he didn't have access to women to use them 
for his hypersexuality. Because when in Medina he got there, he then used literally the worst to marry more than four wives. And there's a worst in Surah Sabi. Any believing woman gives them to you, you can take them. And Aisha said, your Lord uh, hastens to fulfill your desires, right? So there's that aspect to the argument as well, that as when Muhammad got control, he started exercising that. Right on. So next slide we're going to go to is going to get so, to... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you to Dude Abidis, Abidis, Abidis <laughs> for uh, the 10 British pounds donation. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we're going to try to do that this time going forward as well. This time is better for me mm. as well. And um, we're, we're going to try to see if we can do it during the day so we can get more people. There's a lot more people, a um, lot more subscribers awake at this time from mm. other parts of the world. So we'll, we'll try our best to to keep keep going at this time. Um, okay, so next slide I will put up. Right on. So who says Muhammad married 15 to 18 women in the last years of his life? Uh, on the left side, we see a history of Al-Tabari. I think it's volume 8 or volume 9. Uh, he says, reports about the messenger of God's wives, those who survived him, those who left him. And he says, my father reported to me that the messenger of God married 15 women and consummated his marriage with 13. He combined 11 at a time and left behind nine. On the right side, we see Sirah ibn Kathir mention, uh, messenger of God married 15 women, right? And then in the bottom, he brings another narration, contracted marriage with 18 women. Think about this. From the ages of 50 to 60, sorry, 53 to 63, in 10 years, this guy married, what, 18 women. Now think about this. Rehana, Sophia, Javeria, those were the women that his, his husbands he'd kill and then marry them. Then there's Aisha, the little child one. When you start thinking about what this guy was doing, then it's his adopted son's wife. Altered, weird sexual behaviors. Sorry, you're muted, Samir. Yep, yep. Nope, that's all good. I don't have anything to add yet. Okay, so that's one thing that's very interesting. Now, next slide. Uh, Tabari brings up another interesting uh, thing. Uh, the above is reported on the authority of Al-Qalbi. Uh, so it says, Al-Khazraj approached the Prophet while his back was to the sun and clapped him on his shoulder. He asked who it was, and she replied, I am the daughter of one who competes with the wind. I am Layla bint al-Khatim. I have come to offer myself in marriage to you, so marry me. He replied, I accept. She went back to her people and said that the messenger of God had married her. They said, what a bad thing you have done. You are a self-respecting woman, but the prophet is a womanizer. Seek an annulment from him. She went back to the prophet and asked him to revoke the marriage, and he complied with her request. Uh, this is a very interesting narration. I can talk about its authenticity, whatnot, but in line, keeping in line with the other ones, it's pretty interesting that 18 to 15 women in the last 10 years of his life being called a womanizer is is it's pretty clear. Like they're not missing the mark. They're pretty accurate in that description. Now the mm -hmm. next one, and and it's interesting that you know. Um, we have a perfectly good explanation for this, as Dr. Abbas was saying, that this is not just random. This is not midlife crisis. This is this fits in well with the theory we're bringing forward, right? It's abnormal sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. 
So now here's something that even Mufti Abulais brought up in his streams, and he was very mad about this too. Because this is a narration where Muhammad went to a woman and tried to touch her without her consent, right? And she called him, uh, she said, Billah or something, and seek refuge from Muhammad. So he went out with the Prophet to a garden called Al-Shat till we reached the vault between which he sat down. Now, Jaunia, a lady from Bani Jaun, had been brought and lodged in a house in a date palm garden in the home of Umayma bint An-Noim, and her vet nurse was with her. When the Prophet entered upon her, he said, Give me yourself in marriage as a gift. She said, Can a princess give herself in marriage to an ordinary man? So she's calling the Prophet some random ordinary guy, and she's <laughs> saying that I'm a princess. Who the fuck, who the hell are you? <laughs> yeah. But then the Prophet raised his hand to pat her so that she might become tranquil. When a woman touches you, when a woman tells you, don't, I don't want to marry you, your next action should not be to try to touch her <laughs> to calm her down. That's what you're trying to sexually harass her. Yeah. To the point where the lady said, I seek refuge with Allah from you. This is yeah. the prophet of God we're talking about, right? And That's in the wild. right side, uh, I asked Zuri, which of the wives the prophet sought refuge from Allah from him? He said, when the daughter of Joan entered upon the messenger of Allah and he came close to her, she said, I seek refuge with Allah from you. And then he said, okay, you know what? Go back, leave me alone. And she sent her away. And that is just bizarre where like, he's like going after women. And that's what the other thing we are trying to show here is like, he go out of his way to get all these women. Like, what's the problem, dude? Like, chill out. You have nine, 11, 10 wives. How many? You have select slaves. Like, how many do you need, Muhammad? Why do you need so many? So I'm just trying to understand the context of this hadith. He, when he's saying, give me yourself in marriage as a gift, was she a slave? Or this is just a random woman? She was lodged. She, she, uh, she has to be a free woman. So why is he saying, give yourself as a gift to me? What the hell? Like, <laughs> I'm <weird>. like, like <laughs> okay, like, talk about entitled. Hey, hey, that's maybe that's a pickup line. Hey, babe. Uh, Give yourself to me as a gift because I'm the best. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's strange. <laughs> Always yeah. room with another wife. Um, question for you because, um, good question. What, where is it? Uh, basically, the question was, uh, what happened? Why didn't, why wasn't he hypersexual in childhood? I'm trying to find it here. His youth. Why? What? What? What can cause this to become triggered so that? Yes. Yes. Why? Why did? Why was it a change? Like so there it wasn't. Be... He was saying, okay. So actually, by the way, Doctor the Bass was saying if he was hypersexual in his childhood, then we wouldn't basically look at it so out of place when he was in his fifties. But the fact was, he went from being prudish to you know changing mm -hmm. to being hypersexual. But what? What could cause it to change like that? So you know, again, like uh, like he said, he mentioned depression as a trigger, his wife dying in the Amul Hazan, and after that, he started marrying the women, right? So that's one yeah. thing. Depression and trauma could be triggered. The other thing was that when you're young and stuff, if he was like sexual, like teenagers are, oh, it would be normal behavior. It wouldn't be out of yeah. ordinary. Uh, plus, like if you do have uh, sex uh, seizures and stuff, you can get, like he said, hyper and hypo. Another thing was if Muhammad was an orphan, in the society he was a shepherd and whatnot 
he wasn't very well respected and he was turned down by, I believe, one of his cousins for marriage before Khadija, right? So it's uh-huh. not like he didn't try. It's just that he wasn't in a position of power to be able yeah. to get something, right? When he That's did true. get to Medina, it was like, yeah, 18 women, buddy, in the last 10 years, as soon as his first wife died, he waited a, not even a couple of months to marry somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I don't remember if this is correct or not. Salex T is saying, ask Gonal, didn't Dr. Ramachandran say apoplectic people normally have hypersexuality when the age rises? I don't remember exactly. It could go either way. Uh, it's yeah. normally like hypo and hyper. It depends on a lot of factors. The seizure frequency. So if you have grand mal attacks, your brain's going to be just like depleted of neurotransmitters. You're going to be tired after it. So you're obviously not going to be having the urge to have sex, right? But mm-hmm. And then the medications you put on, anti-convulsants, or it could go vice versa, where the seizures of such nature that it triggers sexual responses, which we will see too, because Muhammad does mention something very peculiar about getting revelation under the blanket of Aisha. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, all right, we are on the next slide. This is to show you that Muhammad was actually bragging about his sexual powers at the age of, I don't even know, it'll be about 60 in this 55 this is all after 50 the nine numbers so 11 yeah this would be the later two three years of his life anas bin malik reported that the prophet used to visit all his wives in around during the day and night and they were 11 in number they asked how did the prophet have the strength for it we used to say the prophet was given the strength of 30 men and he had nine wives and in the bottom he would have intercourse with his wives one after another with a single bath uh <laughs> what that's the prophet used to go around have sexual relations with all his wives and one night and he had nine wives uh yeah that's also not healthy to just do that i mean back <laughs> the day, there's promiscuity will lead to i mean that is a possibility i'm not gonna go there yeah. My yeah. sexual stds leave that for another day okay <laughs> the next slide is interesting <laughs> <laughs> The power of 100 porn stars. Now, what I'm trying to show you here is the projection of Muhammad's hypersexuality creeping into the theology or the theology is forming around his hypersexuality where he's going to get 72 wives in heaven, perky boobs for the hoodies in heaven, stuff like that. And now we're seeing his delusional brain creep into Islam on its own. It's forming Islam's vision of what paradise is. The believer shall be given in paradise such and such strength and intercourse. And they're like, people like, huh, he'll be able to do that? And then the prophet says, yeah, he'll be given the strength of a hundred men. Oh, this is again, like kind of like the dog thing where, Mm -hmm. you know, he can't figure it out. So he blames the dog. Now he's basically projecting his own, I don't want to say craziness, but his own peculiar brain state onto the religion. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. And then in the next one, what we go, we find as weird bizarre stuff so this is surah yasin surah 36 verse 55 indeed today the inhabitants of paradise are busy in having fun and enjoyment i.e pleasures what are those pleasures uh delighted in pleasures such as deflowering virgins okay on the right side of least somebody's uh uh Thing. And he says, those so the, all the highlighted bits are like deflowering virgins, uh, deflowering virgins. These are numerous, numerous narrations. In fact, I had a uh, 
a post on this too, where there's like 14 different tafsirs actually mention this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is just to show that uh, it's just bizarre. I can send it to you guys. I'll link I, wanna, it I just want to remind people why we quote tafsir. So there's there's multiple layers in explaining these things. The first layer is primary sources, Quran and Sunnah. The second layer is, of course, um, tafsir, which is interpretations of those who are experts in the field at those points in time with the understanding of the language and, you know, the scholarship. It does not mean necessarily that this is the only interpretation, but it is a well-respected Sunni tradition, Mm. you could say. You could say it like that. Like these guys. Now, does that mean that, of course, it does not mean this is exactly what the Quran says because someone could say, well, you're strawmanning the Quran or the Hadith or whatever. But no, we're not. We're just showing you from the Islamic perspective fairly from multiple layers. And then, of course, the last one would be not tafsirs, but would be like modern scholars that I mean, a tafsir is just a scholarly interpretation anyways. But the, these are like well-known scholars. Let's just put it like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like giants, of, giants of the Ummah. And then, of course, the very last one would be modern scholars. So we're building a case based on multiple layers here, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want me to share that uh, Facebook post? Yeah, if you can, that has a lot of screenshots just to show you that this is not an anomaly. Literally every Mufassir knows about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, one second. Yeah. Thanks. Let's share my screen. Uh, share. Oh, wait, I did share my screen already. So one second. Oh, geez, load. Come on. Okay. For some reason, it's not loading. Not um, okay. Let's continue. Yeah. Let's continue. Yeah. We'll get the point. I can share the link. People can uh, look at the screenshots later. There's a lot. All right, next one, uh, infamous verse in the Quran, which goes in line with his hypersexuality creeping in, which is, and full bosom maidens of equal age, uh, full-breasted mature maidens. Uh, and the tafsir of Ibn Kasir underneath, he says, uh, meaning wide-eyed maidens with fully developed breasts. And Ibn Mujahid, uh, Ibn Abbas Mujahid and others have said, this means round breasts. They meant by this that the breasts of these girls will be fully rounded and not sagging because they will be virgins equal in age. This honest only shows uh, how crazy, you're muted by the way, how Islam can uh, be formed around the delusional thinking of Muhammad's sexual idea and fantasy. Like not everybody likes these things. Why are we so subjectively bound to Muhammad's idea Mm -hmm. of what beauty is or whatever, right? I mean, you know, I've already known a lot of these points, but now when you connect it to the, you know, the temporal lobe epilepsy, it makes that much more sense. Mm -hmm. Yes, we all know, you know, why is it that Muhammad mentions all of these things like honey and milk and gardens and couch? You know, he's, he's doing things according to his perspective. But now it's even more obvious because, I mean, let's just be real. Most men don't you know, they don't fantasize about having 72 women. That's yeah. just weird. I mean, that's excessive. You just it's need, good. I mean, frankly speaking, one good partner. I mean, yeah, sure. There's, you know, men are promiscuous in terms of, you know, wanting to spread genes or whatever from an evolutionary perspective. But 72, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's going to the, you know, it's, that's it's that's, that's, too, that's too much. It's like, what what's going on? There? But I mean, the Quran doesn't say 72. It doesn't say that. But but yeah, it's in the traditions. And, you know, for sure, the, the sensuality is actually something that even I'd say Christians have been criticizing and other people of other religious traditions are. <laughs> it's, it's, Islam's, Alex, you you just need 71. <laughs> it's, 
Islam's version of paradise, everybody will tell you that the holy thing is just bizarre. Like 72 it's vibes, it's weird. Sexuality is everywhere. It's hypersexualized. It's, it's hypersexual Jannah and hypermaterialistic, right? Exactly. Oh, sorry, I interrupted you. You made a good point. Yeah. Uh, hyper, say it again. Hypersexual Jannah and hyper torture hell. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, it is very materialistic and that's a point too. But yeah, now that you've connected it to the TLE, that's, man, that's amazing. And then you can... ask, like, in, in terms of, like, what form are we going to be there in, in Jannah, you know, like, are we going to have the same body parts? What age? Like, it's so many variables. Are we going to even have the same body? Sexuality, our idea of sexuality is tied to our human body right now and hormones and stuff, right? So, it's, again, it's... It makes sense why we are the way we are. I mean, I think this is such a powerful point that evolution explains why we have anger, why we have jealousy, why we have sadness, why we behave in a tit-for-tat manner, why why we get jealous over our partners cheating on us. And, and, and the way that men get jealous is different from the way that women get jealous. Mm -hmm. There's different manifestations and different thinking. For example... In many cultures, women will tolerate a little bit of cheating on the side because, you know, for whatever reason, I don't want to get into that. But the point I'm trying to make is none of this makes sense in paradise. There's mm. no genes to pass on. Mm. There's no need for, there's no, there's no reason for God to cater the rewards for men and women to be different when that's just a manifestation of my, you know, my physical attributes that are designed for me to continue procreation of the species. Why would Pid, none of that makes sense in Pid? It makes I no think. sense. In fact, it seems like somebody who had no foresight or <laughs> stuff and he just created this idea of heaven. Absolutely no sense. It's so materialistic, so childishly silly and naive. And like it almost seemed like a, a 10th, 10 year old can come up with that or even a better idea than that, what heaven would be, right? But he just came up with what was available to him in the seventh century and projected that onto his gods in divine wisdom. Okay, so yeah, All right. I think we said a lot about this. We'll continue. Yeah. Um, is there anything on the side you want to? That's it, right? No, that's it. We have lots more about Huris. We've done a whole episode about them separate. The two Abdullah shows with Jannah. We got in the details of their uh, transparent bones and stuff. Uh, oh yeah, we did a show on that. True. Yeah. So if you want to watch, go refer to that. Uh, we're going to just mention the uh, how Muhammad got married to Aisha. You know, like you'd think it'd be like, you know, he liked her. But no, he's, his delusion was that he was dreaming. He says, the prophet said, you have been shown to me twice in my dream. I saw you pictured on a piece of silk and someone said to me, this is your wife. When I uncovered the picture, I saw that it was yours. And I said, this is from Allah. It will be done. And he says that... Uh, he was sleeping one day and Muhammad had a dream for a few days where this angel brought a baby that's six years old wrapped up in silk to Muhammad and told him that this is your wife. This is delusional and altered and weird sexuality. And then he ended up marrying her when she was the age of six and consummated when she was nine. And they add the additional detail she used to play with dolls. I don't know how many Arab women in the, in, in Arabian 7th century were playing with dolls was used as a description to show their how mature they were. You know? <laughs> like, do you find any other vibes of Muhammad playing with dolls too? No. That's, that's the thing. That's what you got to contextualize. When they mention, again, I used to play with the dolls in the presence of the prophet is to show you 
how childish and how young and how naive this Aisha was. And when Allah the Apostle used to enter my dwelling, God his damn. friends would hide. It's just sad. Uh, again, we've done a <sighs> huge uh, separate uh, thing where we talked about how she might not have been a phage. But even Sfat al-Bari is saying in the bottom, in the brackets, in the description, the playing with dolls and similar images is forbidden. But it was allowed for Aisha at that time, as she was a little girl, not yet reached the age of puberty. Even Fatal Bari is of the opinion, and so is Imam Bukhari when he explains the verse, uh, uh, the women that have not yet menstruated, he uses Muhammad's marriage to Aisha to show that Aisha was not yet of age. Mm-hmm. All right. But this is a yeah. totally different topic. For more detail, you do watch our Scandals of Aisha special episode. This was an interesting one. Now, I remember, uh, I believe uh, one of our subscribers here, Black Angel, she brought up a point where uh, can sexual triggers cause revelation and stuff? And I just did find this one interesting. Uh, Sunan Nasai, the Messenger of Allah said, uh, do not bother me about Aisha for by Allah, the revelation has never come to me under the blanket of any of you apart from her. And he says, and the second one, do not bother me about Aisha. So he gets revelation under the blanket of Aisha. I have read a translation of this hadith where it says he gets revelation when he wears the thobe or the clothes of Aisha. That is another weird translation, but this is just just bizarre. Why would he get revelation while he's under the blanket of Aisha and not one of his other wives? So again, Aisha was his favorite wife. He used to spend more time with her. She was the youngest. Starts making more and more sense. Right on. Uh, next slide, we're just going to quickly talk about the uh, transparent light-emitting origins. Do you, right. do you think there's some, there was a reason why he was getting revelation under the blanket? Yes, yeah, so there, there is an idea. I believe one of our uh, subscriber brought it up where sexual sexuality could trigger. Okay. Again, I just oh, that's what you're saying. Oh, that's what you're saying about blocking. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could yeah, it could trigger it. Again, just to show you guys, uh, if you want to go into more detail, uh, the kind of descriptions Muhammad gives about these virgins in Jannah is also so 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 bizarre. It makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, the prophet said the first batch of people will be glittering like the moon and everyone will have uh, two wives who will be so beautiful and pure and transparent that the marrow of their bones of their legs will be seen through their bones in the flesh that's that's just bizarre that's not beauty i don't know what he's trying to get to there and if a woman among okay, the women you know, maybe it's again something in his head like you were saying you don't think of this as a normal person i mean exactly maybe something weird in his head that that's why you can't understand it is because i don't know <laughs> like he's got a weird like kink or fetish uh, maybe <laughs> or <narrow> fetish. <laughs> i don't know yeah something weird going on in his head that's all i can say uh, and if a woman among the inhabitants of paradise were to appear to the people of earth she would illuminate what is between the heavens and the earth and a pleasant scent would fill up what is between them and the scarf on her head is better than the world and what is in it so Muhammad is so delusional, he thinks that the scarf the hoodie wears is more important than the whole world and the universe. What the F is this? <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Gonzo is laughing at a comment by Black Angel that says jellyfish hoodies. <laughs> <laughs> it, is it possible his eyesight 
like he was seeing things like maybe he saw people differently or something i don't I'm know i'm pretty sure he saw some i'm sure he visited jenna right with the metal <laughs> he saw the dude is there and he's describing okay <laughs> next thing we get to is the uh, affirmation that people who say that oh there's no 72 vibes no there is in the books uh in fact one's graded hassan and then the other sahih by al-albani there uh he's married to 72 vibes along hurul ayn of paradise with large dark eyes at the right one uh, again we don't need these many wives in fact one hoodie can uh, have the power of 72 hoodies too you know like why do you have to have 72 of them in number especially because in in paradise you don't get tired of anything so why would you mm. need variety exactly it's just weird right now what's weird is coming up muhammad's hypersexuality was of another level when you go to the next slide this guy was marrying dead women what right up. yeah there are narrations oh right yeah so is it authentically reported that the prophet will marry maryam and asiya uh there is a number of chains. Some scholars, such as Al-Hakim, consider to be Sahih. Other scholars don't. Ibn Asakir narrates the hadith in his famous book, but others don't. Uh, now, interesting thing here, and this is going to tie back into something we've been talking about throughout, and it ties up to the authenticity of the Islamic corpus. One thing to mention is that although a hadith may be classified as being weak due to the chain of narrators, weakness does not mean that it is false and untrue. So even if we were to take the position that the hadiths are weak, that weakening of the narration does not negate that the reality of what was mentioned possibly being true. And this is something uh, that I'd let the scholars, uh, Sheikh Rami Nisur made the point. Uh, and I just read what he said. And that's important because weak hadith, according to what Sheikh uh, Hamza Yusuf, was like, they're not like a fail. They're like, B, B plus grade. And, you know, Hassan Hadith are like A and the Sahih are like A plus. And he came up with this idea, especially when they're being corroborated and corroborating each other in a number of chains. And then we have other scholars considering it too. But what we want to learn here is why is Muhammad trying to marry dead women? Like he's, kind of, like, he's a king of the kings. He's going to marry all the prophets' wives after they die or something like. Yeah. And uh, apparently this was, this caused some interfaith conflict you know some people find it incredibly offensive to say that yeah Muhammad is going to marry you know marry the mother of god or mm -hmm. the mother of jesus anyways right well next thing muslims are gonna be like use the b theory of time muhammad is the father <laughs> of jesus or something <laughs> okay so this one is gonna be very important remember how dihya al-kalbi would uh show up again and again mm -hmm. as gabriel that is going to be discovered here. What is capgrass? So capgrass is tied to the fusiform gyrus. We'll have Dr. Ramachandran explain it. It's a very interesting uh, delusion that happens. People, for example, if I'm talking to Samir, right? I will look at Samir and I'll say, you know what? That's not Samir. That's somebody who's disguised himself as Samir. And Samir has been taken away and abducted somewhere. So this guy is an imposter. Okay. And I will then try to make sense of who is the actual guy taking Samir's place, right? This happens when the fusiform gyrus is not connected properly to the amygdala. We'll have the expert explain it. And this pops up in epilepsy. Now, what ends up happening is 
you can have inanimate animate delusions both so you can have delusions where people start thinking that oh my furniture is being replaced oh my cat is not the same cat it's the imposter cat right some people think the whole world 30,000 people were replaced they're sent in the basement the Russians are doing this weird thing delusions are just bizarre Muhammad's illusion was that he would see Dihya al-Kalbi, who also happens to be the most handsome person, which is an interesting one because when we see a desirable facial features, we our brains are wired to see them more and notice them more. That could be an interesting thing where his handsomeness is tied to Gabriel. Uh, but yeah, he would see Dihya al-Kalbi, but then he'd be like, no, that's not Dihya al-Kalbi. That is Gabriel coming in the form of Dihya al-Kalbi. Mm -hmm. And this is a very interesting delusion that happened not once, not twice, but three, four times. And it's mentioned in the books. Oh, like, I, I want to show that. I just want to make one quick um, disclaimer about the hadith that we showed uh, just from a friend in Medina there, uh, from Medina, studied Medina. He, just okay to mention it here, but oh, oops, <laughs> that's a long one. Um, yeah, just for just for a point of completeness, just to mention some of these hadith are made up and not part of the mainstream Sunni corpus. Mm -hmm. Yes, just for, just as a point of completeness, we um, you know we're gonna include them in here anyways. And this is an Islamic website, so Seekers Guidance is quoting this. Uh, depending on how you classify hadith, you may may not consider it valid, but we're gonna include it for the point of completeness regardless exactly and it shows yeah. the ideas further but the thing is like when we're mentioning these hadith like i said we mentioned in the beginning that the fact that we're showing shia hadith the fact that we're showing sunni hadith it should automatically let you know that we're not bound by the sunni or the shia standard of narration as being just those strict standards right so if a sunni scholar says that oh this is not part of the corpus but then there's five shia scholars saying no that this definitely happened i'm still going to include it because they could have still happened. And it's still just from the Islamic corpus. So exactly, uh, yeah. this is something that's important to realize that I'm not going to be bound. Another thing I want to clarify, I'm not going to be bound by Farid's grading of Hadith. I, I was going to say, he's going to pick on stuff like this. And he say, is oh, going to pick on it. And he's going to think <laughs> like he's, he's figured it out. Point is, the scholars that I've used or shown, they are higher and above Farid. Farid is not an Islamic scholar, right? So I'm using scholarly works. They're yeah. things. And again, like, uh, I'm using Shia books. He's going to pick on that for sure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's getting cold here in Canada. Shout out to the jammies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, but let's continue. Right on. Right. So Capgrass. So what is imposter syndrome? So just as a quick, uh, imposter syndrome is a rare condition in which someone believes that their loved ones or others that they know have been replaced with doubles or imposters. Right? Uh, you can get this... Uh, Alzheimer's, Capgras, and other things. It is also more likely in people with other brain conditions such as Parkinson's or epilepsy. Okay. Uh, one research estimate that people with schizophrenia and dementia make up 81% of all the cases. On the top right, it says post-ictal Capgras syndrome. Complex partial seizures of right temporal origins manifested Capgras syndrome in the post-ictal state after the seizure. Uh, another one that says Capgras phenomena in a case of temporal epilepsy. This present reported cases a patient of temporal epilepsy who developed the classical features of Capgras phenomenon. So we now see that Capgras can indeed occur with epilepsy. Let's see what it actually is when we get the experts to explain it. Capgras syndrome or delusion is also known as imposter syndrome. 
It is a rare condition in which an individual believes that a person close to them has been replaced by a double or an imposter. The imposter looks like them and assumes their role and behaves like them. The replaced person could be a spouse, a family member, a close friend, or even a pet. Sometimes the patient may believe that there are more than one version of the same person. Joseph Capgrass was a French psychiatrist. He co-authored a paper in 1923 in which the syndrome was first described. They termed the disorder l'illusion de Suzy, which means illusion of lookalikes. The patient that was described was Madame M, who believed that her husband and other people had been replaced by imposters. Initially, the syndrome was considered to be a purely psychiatric disorder. However, now it is recognised as a neurological disorder in which the delusion primarily results from organic brain lesions or degeneration. Capgras syndrome is commonly associated with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias such as Lewy body disease, schizophrenia, brain injury, rarely epilepsy and other organic conditions. What about treatment? Treating the cause of the condition is what matters most. So for instance, in schizophrenia, it would be antipsychotic medication and psychotherapy, in dementia, anti-dementia drugs, and in organic brain lesion surgery, if that's possible. Bye for now. All right. So we're going to watch this. Uh, we watched a small one, and now we're going to have a Dr. Ramachandran explain in detail so seven minute video gives us a little break to uh, absorb uh, the material. Yeah, question to you Bef yeah. before we jump into this, mm -hmm. um, just so people know what they're watching for, how does this give us a sneak peek? How is this relevant? So <clears throat> Muhammad would sometimes see one of his companions, Dhiya Al-Kalbi. People around Muhammad say, yeah, that's Dhiya. That's the guy we know. We know he's the man. Muhammad would then, then tell people, no, that's not the Al-Kalbi. He's been replaced. He is now Gabriel. Okay. Or sometimes the Al-Kalbi will come to Muhammad and talk to him about something. Muhammad would say, that was not the Al-Kalbi talking to me. That was Gabriel. And then that would create an interesting phenomenon where then Muhammad would take what the Al-Kalbi said as gospel and then follow his commands thinking it's Gabriel. This freaked out a couple of his companions and they noticed it too. And in fact, Muhammad would reaffirm this, that Gabriel comes to me in the form of the Hiyal Kalbi. I went to Miraj and I saw Gabriel. <laughs> he looked exactly like the Hiyal Kalbi. So you see this delusion form. And this is so interesting because it happens a few times. One time he's ha at home with his wife and she randomly just sees him talking to the Hiyal. He then tells her, no, that's not the Hiyal. That's, that, that's Angel Gabriel. She's like, no, that's the Hiyal. Right? Then happens at the Banu Koraiza incident. He sees Dihya, he thinks that it's Gabriel. People are like, no, that's Dihya Kalbi. And then he has other things. Dihya Kalbi is also the guy who actually got Safiya as his slave first at Khaybar. And then when Muhammad found out who it was, he gave him seven slaves to get her back. <laughs> it's a very interesting one. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Now that we have that, let's yeah. play this. All right. You can blow it up. There's one extraordinary syndrome called Capgras syndrome, which is so rare that even most neurologists have not heard of it. This refers to patients who are otherwise normal, 
sometimes even in a psychiatric setting, but sometimes just after a head injury. The guy's been in a car accident and maybe has been in a coma for a couple of weeks and then comes out of the coma, seems quite normal, fluent in conversation, not emotionally disturbed, not hysterical in any obvious way, seems quite normal, except that he has one profound delusion. He looks at his mother and he says, doctor, this woman looks exactly like my mother. You know, he looks exactly, but she's not my mother. She's an imposter. She's pretending to be my mother. Okay. It's a replica. And he says this is a perfectly straight face. There is nothing else wrong with this guy. Okay. He can read a newspaper. He can talk to you about politics. He can talk to you about the Monica Lewinsky case. He can talk about anything you want. Okay. But when he looks at his mother, he says, this is an imposter. Some other woman pretending to be my mother. How do you explain this extraordinary syndrome? The standard explanation is Freudian, and you find it in most psychiatry textbooks. And that is, this young man, when he was a baby, when he was an infant, like most infants, like all of us here, and the same argument applies in reverse to women, but I'll just talk about men. When you're babies, you had a strong sexual attraction to your mother. This is called the so-called Oedipus complex of Freud. Okay? I'm not saying I believe this, but I'm saying this is the standard view, okay? Then you grow up, and then you repress these forbidden sexual urges. Thank God, otherwise all of us would be sexually aroused by your mother, okay? And then along comes a blow to the head, bang, and these repressed sexual urges come flaming to the surface. And then you say, my God, if this is my mother, why am I feeling sexually aroused when I see her? Okay? She must be some other strange woman, maybe it's pheromones, who knows what it is. This is the standard explanation, and it's a very ingenious explanation, as indeed most Freudian explanations are, okay? <laughs> but it doesn't work, because I've seen patients with Capgras syndrome who have the same delusion, not about their mother, but about their pet poodle, about their dog. Now you think about it, how does the Freudian explanation work, work here, okay? You can start talking about the inherent bestiality in all human beings, or something like that, but it simply doesn't work. And then I thought maybe there's a simpler explanation for this syndrome, namely, we know that in the temporal lobes there's an area called infratemporal cortex, which is concerned with just processing faces, recognizing faces. When that's damaged, you get prosopagnosia, you can no longer recognize people's faces. But when you look at any object in the world, it's processed there, and then it gets sent to the amygdala and to the limbic system, which are the emotional centers of the brain, so you're emotionally aroused by what you're looking at. If it's a slide projector, obviously you're not emotionally aroused. If it's, a, if it's a, you know, a light there, you're not aroused. But if you look at a mother, you say, wow, it's my mom. You know, there, is this, there is this warm glow or this terror, as, this, as the case may be. Okay? When you look at your mother. When you look at somebody else who you've never seen before, there is no emotional arousal. So what I said was maybe what's wrong with this guy is, maybe the face area is normal. That's why he can still say, yeah, it looks like my mother. It is my, it looks like my mother. But the message doesn't get to the amygdala because this wire is cut because of the head injury. So he looks at his mother and he says, if it's my mom, why don't I feel anything? Must be some, there's something weird here. It must be some other strange woman. That's the only explanation that makes sense to him given his, this disconnection I'm talking about. Now, how do you test this? Well, you can test it very easily by using what we call a galvanic skin response. When any one of you, if I show you computerized images, sorry, images on the, on the computer of different objects, a slide projector, the message gets processed in the visual centers, 
in the temporal lobe, then you identify a slide projector, goes to the amygdala, which gauges the emotional significance of what you're looking at. My God, is this a predator? My God, is this a mate? Is this my mom? Or is it just a slide projector? I can ignore it, okay? The amygdala does that, and then it cascades into the rest of the limbic system, into the hypothalamic nuclei, down the autonomic nervous system, okay? Down the autonomic nervous system. And then what happens is, the skin starts sweating, your heart starts pounding, you prepare the body for fighting, fleeing, feeding, or sexual behavior, okay? Your body gets prepared for action. Your heart starts pounding, and your skin starts sweating because you want to dissipate heat because you're going to be doing something, you're going to, do, you're going to be doing something active, okay? You can measure the change in skin resistance by, put, by putting two electrodes on the palm of the hand. And this measures the change in resistance. So when I put any one of you here, in front of the screen and show you a slide projector, there's no change in resistance. But if I show you, uh, if I show you a stranger, there is no change in resistance. But if I show you your mom, you say, wow, mom, okay? Instantly, it cascades in and it makes you, believe it or not, every time you see your mom, you sweat. <laughs> All of you here, okay? Whereas if I show you some inanimate object like the slide projector or something like a shoe or something like that, Nothing happens, unless you have a shoe fetish, then you can, you know, <laughs> that's a different matter, okay? Now, what about our patient? So we had a patient, he came into, the, uh, into, our, into our office, and I hooked him up to the galvanic skin response. I showed him slide projectors, nothing, that's obvious. I showed him tables and chairs, nothing. I showed him people he has never seen, nothing. Then I showed him his mother, nothing. No galvanic skin response. But as any one of you here in the audience, if you see your mother, you get a huge big galvanic response. This supports our argument that there's been a disconnection. But the reason I'm telling you about this syndrome is it's a striking example of cognitive neuroscience, the power of this whole new approach to neuroscience, to the brain. And that is you can take a completely bizarre, seemingly incomprehensible neurological syndrome. Seems almost like the guy is nuts. Seems like a psychiatric syndrome. You know, the guy is saying his mother is an imposter. And then say, no, the Freudian explanation is wrong. There's a specific disconnection here between the amygdala, the emotional centers in the brain, and the visual centers in the brain. That's what explains his curious predicament. And then you can spend one hour doing an experiment and show that that's what's gone wrong in his brain. All right. So... That was very, very interesting. So now we saw, we learned that the idea that you can see somebody and then take notes, not actually them, it's somebody else taking their spot and they're just disguised in a nice way, is an understood and known phenomenon. It's called Capgras syndrome or imposter syndrome. You can have either a one person, one relative being replaced. You can have a multitude of people. You can also have inanimate objects. So some people might have the delusion that my furniture is being replaced. This is not the same table, right? Or this for the pets too, like he said. Uh, now, this is very interesting. It's given us a good idea of what to uh, look at. We have some more cases in the next slide I want to show. Uh, so this is just another uh, patient case. Uh, she believes that her sons replaced her possessions and furniture. Replacement of inanimate objects was considered as a rare variant of crabgrass in recent years. The patient's history is discussed from different points of view. Uh, but yeah, this is also another interesting one where the person has epilepsy and they're getting capgrass, okay? 
Uh, and we've already seen that the doctor has mentioned that this can occur with epilepsy, especially in a post-sectal state. Now let's see how did it affect Muhammad. Sorry, my screen wasn't shit. The presentation's gone weird. Give me a second. Try okay. to... We are uh, 324. Okay, window. Okay, got it. Perfect. So, the Hiya Kalbi was Gabriel, Muhammad's capgrass. In Sahil Bukhari, in the left side, we see, I was informed that Gabriel came to the Prophet while Umm Salama was with him. Gabriel started talking to the Prophet, and the Prophet asked Umm Salama, Who is this? She replied, He is Dihya al Kalbi. <laughs> When Gabriel had left, Umay Salama said, By Allah, I did not take him for anybody other than Dihya till I heard the sermon of the Prophet where he informed about the news of Gabriel. In the right side, it's the same thing. Salama began to talk with him. He then stood up whereupon Allah's messenger said to Salama, Who was he and what did he say? She said he was Dihya. And by Allah, I did not deem it was anybody else in Dihya until I heard the Prophet the next day in the sermon. We clearly see there's a person next to Muhammad who's like, No. That is Dihya al-Kalbi. That is not an angel. Muhammad's like, no, that guy is an angel. That is not the real Dihya al-Kalbi. Now tell me what is more likely. Is the angel coming in the form of Dihya al-Kalbi or Dihya al-Kalbi is actually there and Muhammad is misperceiving that he's an angel because of the capgrass? And next... It's interesting too that he's asking Um Salama, who is this? Yeah. Is that he doesn't know who it is. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the next slide... Uh, what we want to know and we want to affirm from Islam web was we learned, sorry, we learned that Gabriel frequently appeared in the form of Dihya al-Kalbi. Uh, the question is interesting. Can <laughs> angels be photographed? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Can they have a shape similar to humans? Uh, yeah, uh, in the shape of the known companion of the prophet, Dihya al-Kalbi. It is narrated in Bukhari and Muslim Umm Salma and he talks about that as well. Gabriel the shapeshifter reptilian. <laughs> now, once we've affirmed that he would frequently visit him, now we're going to get to a specific incident. In the next slide, we come across the attack on Banu Qurayza, right? Now, who came to Muhammad was, again, Dihya Kalbi in the form of an angel. <laughs> According to what Al-Zuhri told me, at the time of the noon prayers, Gabriel came to the Prophet wearing an embroidered turban and riding on a mule with a saddle covered with a piece of brocade. He asked the apostle if he had abandoned fighting. And when he said that he had, he said that the angels had not yet laid aside their arms and that he had just come from pursuing the enemy. God commands you, Muhammad, to go to Banu Qurayza. I'm about to go to them to shake their stronghold. Right? Skip to the bottom we go, we see the Apostle passed by a number of his companions in Al-Sorain uh, before he got to Banu Qurayza and asked if anyone had passed them. They replied that Dihya bin Khalifa al-Kalbi had passed upon a white mule with a saddle covered with a piece of brocade. He said, that was Gabriel who has been sent to Banu Qurayza to shake their castles and strike terror to their hearts. Oh my God! They said we saw Dia. He said, "Oh, that's uh, that's Gabriel." I can't believe they mentioned that. That's that's so wild. And this is this story is mentioned in uh, uh in uh by Tabari as well. And the next slide. Hold our... on. So, like, <laughs> this is wild. Somebody came to Muhammad Gabriel and said, "You know, let's go fight Benukuleza." 
then they go. Muhammad asks, you know, as the companions are passing him, um, you know, if who is passed so far, who's already there, whatever. And he said, and they said, oh yeah, the Al Kalbi. And then he's like, no, 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 that's that's not the Al Kalbi. So he he knew about the Al Kalbi and he equated that too. He knew they also thought that the Al Kalbi was Gabriel. Like what? <laughs> How is that happening? <laughs> or is it the description? Oh, it's a guy on a white mule. Oh yeah, that guy on the white mule. That's Gabriel. <laughs> It's so absurd. And then he says that that guy told him to shake the castle and strike terror into their hearts. Like, this guy is like on something. Like, he's on another level, you know? This is wild. In the, this, in the next this, slide. I'm, I'm blown away at the fact that we have recorded narrations where the companions said they, they think it was Dia, not Gabriel. It's just like demystifies the entire mm, thing. Exactly. <laughs> now, a comment I see by Mr. Omar Siddiqui. Can you explain the Gabriel Hadith where it said that there was a person that came with no signs of travel upon it? Wink, wink. The next slide is about that. And that was also Dihya Al-Kalbi. Oh. <laughs> All right. So this one is the uh, history of Tabari. It's the same narration. He says at noontime, Gabriel wearing a cloth of uh, gold turban came to Muhammad and a mule with a brocade. Before searching Banu Qurayz, reaching Banu Qurayz, the Prophet passed, he said, yes, they replied, the Al-Kalbi passed in us in a white mule with a brocade covered saddle. The Prophet said that was Gabriel sent to the Banu Qurayz. The people said that's the end. He's like, no, that's Gabriel. On the right side of the page, next page, we see another one. Uh, then Gabriel. The footnote, the footnote as well, right? Yeah, the Hiyakalbi was traditionally represented as a rich merchant of such beauty that Angel Gabriel assumed his features. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Someone was asking in the questions, uh, in the comments, so I, it's hard to keep up, but it, it, she was asking, why is he, Coco Jasmine, why is the, the reason Dia being so handsome is mentioned? I guess it's because to say that he was handsome like an angel so exactly that, yeah <laughs> or to or to back protect the gabriel's a handsome angel <laughs> yeah or that these handsome men come to muhammad to talk to him in the form of things <laughs> all right uh, um, another... there was another sorry one more thing um, yeah <laughs> black angel earlier was like how to cheat with dia without anyone knowing <laughs> he's an angel <laughs> Sorry, that was <laughs> it, 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 anyways, yeah. Okay. On the third page here, we see. Uh, then Gabriel came to him and said, "Have you laid down your arms? By God, the angels have not yet laid down their arms. Go out to them and fight." Uh, so one thing we need to learn that here we un we come into a contradiction. Did Muhammad follow gabriel's advice or the al-kalbi's advice and misperceived it as god telling him to go attack the banu Qurayza. It's this, even is getting worse. Worse. this is getting worse and satanic verses this is like yes. humans human influence <laughs> <laughs> and then he says uh, so they passed by banu ram he said muhammad then asked them who passed by you they replied the al-kalbi passed by us his demeanor, beard, and face are likened to Gabriel. <laughs> now, the next slide is the one, the biggest Muslim's crutch argument, you know, that this guy came with no signs of travel upon him. And like, who was it? They didn't know. And they thought it was Gabriel. And they used this as evidence, as some sort of, uh, of some proof. So we're going to go to the next slide, 328. We're going to see what we have here. So this is the infamous Gabriel Hadith. 
Uh, here, uh, our pictures are hiding the bottom part of the hadith. Can you move uh, those, Samir? I'm sorry? Can you move the picture, our face? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sorry, yeah. All right. So on the left side, we have the Gabriel Hadith, right? So the talk, a man came along who was the most handsome, good-smelling of all people. It was as if he had no dirt, ever touched his garment. He came near the edge of the rug and gave it in. And he has this whole long conversation with Muhammad, right? And after that, at the end, Muhammad tells us, then he said, no, by the one who sent Muhammad with the truth, with guidance and glad tidings, I did not know him more than any man among you. That was Jibreel, who came down in the form of Dihya al-Kalbi. The infamous hadith where this person comes down and he's talking, it's Dihya al-Kalbi, that's it. It's Muhammad confused and telling people, no, that's an angel. No, it's Dihya al-Kalbi. People did not see an angel. And also, funnily enough, that it's always when they do see an angel, they never see him in there in the form that Muhammad sees him in his wings and shit. They always see a man that might be misperceived oh. as an angel. So again, this is a big smackdown where the hadith itself clearly says that no, that guy was just straight up the Kalbi and Muhammad thought it's Gabriel. The right side, Jamia Tirmizi, you see, I saw Jibreel and the closest of the people in resemblance to him from those I have seen is Dihya al-Kalbi. And this is Muhammad talking about when he went to heaven and he saw the prophets. He then met Dihya al-Kalbi there too or Gabriel, whoever you want to call that. You know, this is, I've read this and only now it's clicking in like, man, this is so bad. For the Islamic narrative, it would have been Muhammad better for them to just say it would have been better for them to just not put that part about he that he looked like Dia Al Kalbi. He looked like Dia Al Kalbi. I thought that was Dia Al Kalbi. It's like it's such a simple explanation for you know that kind of demystifies the entire thing. Mm -hmm. This is this is terrible. This is like slam dunk. Oh man. And that's what brings us back to right. Like Muhammad's was delusional, but these aspects were preserved 14 centuries ago not knowing like people would not have known about capgrass but they still somehow managed to preserve it and only now we realize what it actually is so that alone alludes to me that whatever was happening these symptoms are too peculiarly precise in line with modern neurology that they could not have been faked by seventh century bedouins that's what i'm getting to right uh but yeah uh now, the, we are at slide number 328. Uh, the next section is about his delusions and his mirage and stuff. Uh, we can do some of the slides right now because there are some very interesting tidbits. We probably won't be finishing this section because it's pretty long. Uh, but yeah, we'll try to. This section ends at slide 357. So let's see if we can get through it. And then uh, uh, we will conclude for the day right on this is going to be a four or five minute video from an islamic scholar that will explain what the hell muhammad saw at the night journey right and then there's a special dr yasir Qadi clip coming up with mushrooms and trees and drugs <laughs> so we're gonna watch that too all right let's get to it to this worldly life into the upper heavens glorified is Allah in full control is Allah who has transported in a night journey 
sins to the Prophet and operates on him. Jibreel opens his chest and washes his heart with the water of Zamzam. And then the Prophet is cleansed of anger and hatred and Iman and Hikmah is added to his heart. After being cleansed, the Prophet ﷺ is summoned by Jibreel to Al-Buraq. The Prophet would say that it would take its one step to the extent of the horizon. And subhanAllah, as he comes to ride Al-Buraq, it begins to cause a stir. And Jibreel is the one who settles it down and says, Mount him, O Muhammad ﷺ. When the Prophet ﷺ arrives in Bayt Al-Maqdis, Jibreel orders the Prophet ﷺ to tie his buraq to the ring that the prophets used to always tie their animals in after having led the prophets of Allah in prayer. The Prophet ﷺ ascends. The heavens gates are closed. The angels of the first heaven, they say, Who are you? To Jibreel, Allahu Akbar. To Muhammad, who are you? He says, Anna Jibreel. He identifies himself. Muhammad. Have you been sent to bring him up? Is he allowed to ascend? Yes, he's been asked for by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's only after that that the angels open the first heaven and greet the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with salam. And when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is greeted with salam by the angels, each and every one of them smiles at him. And each and every one of them precedes him with salam. Until the Prophet sallallahu sees the angel Malik. He doesn't know it is the guardian of Jahannam. And the Prophet sees him, an angel who has a sternness, an un comfortable persona. The Prophet is taken aback and asks Jibreel, who is this? And Jibreel says, this is Malik, the governor, the maintainer of Jahannam. Ya Muhammad, precede him with salam. In the first heaven, he meets Adam alayhi salam. In the second heaven, Isa wa Yahya. In the third heaven, he meets Harun. In the next, Idris. In the next, Musa. In the next, Ibrahim alayhi salam at the final heaven. And the Prophet ﷺ remarks that he saw no man who looked closer to him in likeness than Ibrahim. And Ibrahim was sitting with his back leaning against Al-Bayt Al-Ma'mur, the Kaaba of the heavens. And then the Prophet ﷺ is invited to Sidrat Al-Muntaha, to the lottery, which is the furthest extent that Jibreel can go to. And no one before him or after him وسلم, has transcended that barrier. And the Prophet ﷺ is brought towards Allah and communes with Allah and speaks with Allah. The first is that the Prophet ﷺ is given by Allah directly the last two verses of Surah Al-Baqarah. And the second was the writing down of salah upon our ummah. 50 prayers a day. And the Prophet accepted it, sallallahu alayhi wa And when he descended, Musa asked him, what have you been given? He said, 50 salah. He said, go back. Go back to Allah, azza wa jal. I've been tested with Bani Israel. Your ummah will not be able to do 50 salah, ya Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi He returns to Allah. Not once or twice or three. From 50 to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10. Go back, ya Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa I will go back. To five. Go back, Ya Muhammad. No. And the Prophet ﷺ says, I have a shyness between myself and Allah. Would you have believed if he came that next morning and said, and there were Sahaba who recanted faith? There were people who accepted faith, and on account of this test. So we learned that uh, this story was just bizarre. Now, where we stop this is the guy goes to heaven, he's going up, he's meeting all these dead prophets. And in the hadith, we also learned that he met Gabriel and he described Gabriel as uh, being similar to Dhiya Kalbi. 
But then he goes to the top, the Sidratul Muntaha. And that is a tree. There's a lot tree in Jannah. Now, what is interesting is, is this tree is going to be explained by Dr. Al-Sheikh Al-Islam uh, Yasser Al-Qa'di in the next slide. Because you will be shocked that this tree is literally sounding like a psychedelic trip on shrooms or hallucinogens that we even have people, my friends have experienced this. Colorful trees will come out. We're going to watch that video and it's going to be a blast. Let's go to the next slide. If you uh, have any sort of, um, you know, just a warning about flashing colors and stuff, just yeah. uh, if you have any triggers from... So if you, know, you are because you yeah just because just just be careful there's a trigger warning for CG yeah this, next slide. This, it's quite a funny slide but it's it can be intense okay there it is muntaha <laughs> until we got to the sidratul muntaha faghashiyaha alwanun la adri it's a beautiful phrase here very interesting ghashiyaha means it was enveloped so we can imagine it was enveloped uh, meaning it, it's changing and allah azza wa jal himself says in the quran that when the tree was covered up by what it was covered up with. Allah doesn't tell us what. It's a circular thing. When the tree was covered up by whatever was covering it up. And so the Prophet is saying, There were colors basically going up and down the tree. I don't know what those colors are. It's a beautiful phrase here that there are colors beyond the spectrum that we know of, right? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. This is a very small spectrum. Beyond this is, of course, many other types of energy and light. And the Prophet is seeing something that in this world cannot be seen. Because in this world, this is the spectrum of the colors. So he is definitely in another zone, another dimension, whatever you want to call it. He is witnessing colors coming from this tree. He said, I don't know how to explain these colors to you. And I find this phrase very fascinating because it's, it's, it actually fits in very well with whatever we know uh, of science. Not that we want to scientifically interpret it, but you get my point that he is saying something so simple for the observer, the casual observer, but there's a deep and profound uh, truth to this. And that is that he is seeing something completely different dimension, different world that he is seeing energy and light coming to him from a complete, he doesn't know how to describe this uh, color. Now, what is the Sidratul Muntaha? We have very little information about the Sidratul Muntaha. All that we know, this is the last thing that the Prophet saw before he went above to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the final. And uh, we know that everything that rises up from earth stops at Sidratul Muntaha. Allah says in many verses that Allah raises things up. Give me an example. What does Allah say? He raises things up. The souls. Okay, what else? No, no, no. This is Rafa'a to this. No. Raises it up. Prayers, du'as. Wal'amalu salihu yarfa'uhu. Right? Good deeds. Right? Kalimat tayyib. All of these things, Allah raises it up. So we learn from one hadith uh, that uh, in, in Sahih Muslim, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said that the Prophet said, then I, when I went on the Isra, I stopped at the Sidratul Muntaha, and he said, It is in the sixth heavens. At the Sidratul Muntaha, everything that ascends up from the earth 
stops there. فَيُقْبَضُ مِنْهَا and it is basically absorbed by the Sidrat al-Muntaha. وَإِلَيْهَا يَنْتَهِ مَا يُهْبَطُ مِنْ فَوْقِهَا And from it descends down everything that is coming to this earth and it emerges from it. So Allah's rahmah and the rain and anything that Allah wants to send down, the origination, the origination where does it begin from? Sidrat al-Muntaha. Right? So everything that is raised up goes to the Sidrat Muntaha. Everything that comes down starts from the Sidrat Muntaha. And uh, the Prophet ﷺ said, That when the tree was enveloped by what it was enveloped by, the Prophet ﷺ said, Butterflies from made out of gold. So one of the things that is surrounding the tree are beautiful butterflies with exotic colors made out of gold. So this is of the things that is surrounding the tree. And there are other things as well that we don't know because Allah has said, that when the tree was enveloped by what it was enveloped by, the eyes of the Prophet did not move beyond that, nor did they go astray, meaning he absorbed this beautiful sight. Right? Then Allah says, Looking at this tree, Allah says, He has seen of the ayat al-kubra. And if Allah is saying this is a major ayah, then what is bigger than this? Right? So by viewing the Sidrat al-Muntaha, Allah is saying He has seen of His most magnificent creations uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the uh, Sidrat al-Muntaha. And uh, in one version of At-Tabari, the Prophet ﷺ said, When it was enveloped by what it was enveloped by, the Prophet ﷺ said, it kept on changing until nobody can describe it for you. So the tree is not a static tree. We can, whatever image we get, it's a ever-changing tree. Colors are going up and down. There's butterflies of gold. Uh, it's, it's, uh, its leaves are massive. Its fruits are as large as the jars of Hajar. So we get some impression that it is a dynamic tree. It's a beautiful, majestic tree. It is an otherworldly tree. And this is the uh, Sidratul Munt. That was that was a lot, a lot to take in. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Like Muhammad goes up to heaven. There's this big tree that goes from the sixth heaven to the seventh heaven. And then there's colors and butterflies. Like, guy, come on. Kazi, I can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, <laughs> uh, like, yeah, you're right that this does seem to match an LSD trip not that I've done LSD but from what <laughs> I've heard um, this is it's very colorful very visual very dramatic um, and you know something to point out here it's not the topic at hand but the co the Islamic cosmology doesn't make any sense I mean no <laughs> you know there's seven heavens stacked up on top of each other there's people living at each la layer there's seven earths stacked up on top of each other which people don't seem to realize as part of the Islamic cosmology as well. Um, and some people saying mushrooms. Mushrooms, as far as I know, do not give you such a visual. Shrooms don't give you a visual um, experience. They give you an internal experience. It's a mental, emotional, psychological trip. It's not a visual. You don't you see some sort of droopy faces and stuff, but you don't see like wild colors and things like that. It's You might see like the walls kind of like, dancing or moving a little bit a little bit but not like not like this i think this is a different you know maybe probably lsds <laughs> do this <laughs> i have i have heard from one of my friends where he would see the uh, in fall like if you go out the colors of the tree 
So when the leaves move in the wind, if you're on shrooms, the colors kind of go with flow, like they fly with the wind into the wind. So when Kadi was talking about the colors were like going around the tree and shit, I was like, okay, okay, go. <laughs> Golden butterfly rainbow tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And the funny thing is, this is God saying this is the Ayatul Kubra. The biggest sign of God. That is very oh. crazy. And this is in the Quran. Mm. Uh, is this going to be the last slide, or should we? The, yeah. the next one says Muhammad the narcissist. Is it? Yeah, I think, yeah I think we're going to stop here because then we okay. have like uh, delusions, narcissism, bodily delusions coming up where he thought that his uh, seal of the prophet, the mole on his back, was actually divine. Talk about bodily delusions he has. He'd make people uh, rub his spit and stuff on his face. Uh, things like that. <clears throat> the next step, we then actually get into a statistical analysis of the Quran's top five chapters. We get into hypergraphia, how the Quran from Meccan period, as Muhammad ages, gets less and less poetic and more prosaic. And then Muhammad completely loses the ability, which could be attributed mm -hmm. to aging. Then uh, we talk about cases of hypergraphia, people being uh, triggered into compulsive rhyming, rhyming because of epilepsy with no prior history of uh, of poetry, we also see many, many, many famous cases about poet, uh, about epileptics and literature giants and famous military leaders, whatnot, contemporary and uh, historical figures. Then we also get to a very important section that's very, very pivotal. Why is Islam engulfed in so much violence? Muhammad's last 10 years of his life, 60, 65 to 70 raids battles. Three to five were only Muslims were in defense. 95 to 98% was proactive warfare. When you do the math, you get a battle every month or two, right? And then you realize that this was a war economy. Battle of uh, Trench happened. Muslims were surrounded for a whole month. They were down on supplies. How do you fix that? You go attack Banu Quraysh and steal their stuff to balance it out, right? Stuff like this, you'll see why did he solicit so much violence? You'll see that epilepsy can cause people to a, react very negatively to criticism and then how he killed poets upon poets and blasphemy killings and whatnot. Lots more to come. And then at the end, we get to the very important one called scrupulosity or OCD of Muhammad, which will seal the case where you'll see that, okay, this guy is uh, suffering. And then we have, I don't know if you're going to do a separate episode where we will, after this whole series is over, we'll do a separate show where we just discuss the reading between the lines, connecting the hallucinations. Like, for example, if Allah sits on a chair, why is Muhammad seeing Gabriel sitting on a chair in the form of a human being in the first revelation? Did he confuse Allah for Muhammad or gave that description to Allah? These kind of things we'll talk about. And we'll take callers in with that so we can have an interactive, ongoing discussion where we all kind of come together and see how his delusions connect. Uh, but this was all for today. Lots more to come next next week. Uh, we will change the timing. Uh, we'll probably try to do it again earlier during the day. Yeah, if possible. Yeah. If not, yeah. you know, we'll do what works for you and me. We'll, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm flexible, but um, family stuff comes first, obviously. Okay. So, yeah, we covered a lot of really interesting stuff today. Um, one of the biggest ones to me was the Dia al-Kalbi, like just the strength of the argument of how how like how many references there are that 
you know, of Dia Al-Kalbi being Gabriel. So, you know, take it as you will. Maybe Gabriel impersonates this guy every single time, but never, companions never see him in his, in his original form, mm -hmm. which is interesting because they could have just made up a hadith like that. Yeah. But they didn't. Mm -hmm. Another thing I wanted to point out was <clears throat> some people, they see the hadith where Muhammad says, I hear ringing bells and then a man comes, talks to me. Muhammad is that time describing only him seeing the man, okay, and him talking to the man. Some people have, due to their misunderstanding, conflated this with the hadith where the Kali was talking to the prophet, the prophet. and that mm -hmm. the, the companion saw the Kali. That is separate. Those are distinct things. I don't want that straw man. I'm preemptively uh, telling mm -hmm. you guys that this will happen because I know who's going to do it. I know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, no. Another thing I wanted mm -hmm. to point out was the angels appearing in the Battle of Badr and Ohad. Now, what was that? Uh, during those times, we have literally hadith, if you go on, you'll see that uh, the Sahaba were drunk on the day of Ohad and Badr. So firstly that, and secondly, that the angels came in Badr the one, but in Ohad, the angels weren't good enough, which leads me to believe that there were no angels at all, and it was just the <laughs> Sahaba, drunk whilst fighting and then in that stressful situation they might have seen somebody whatever uh clearly uh those testimonies cannot be taken as evidence of yeah the angel appeared in the human form when the sahaba are saying we drank wine and the morning of the battle this was obviously before wine was forbidden mm -hmm. uh, yeah just wanted to say that uh any questions anything guys we'll take some here and then we'll sign out for the day yeah, so um, definitely a lot of good stuff here. And, you know, we need your help, guys, to keep this going and to spread it to more people. If everyone can send this to five people, um, you know, for example, there's ways to do this. One is you can leave it in the comments on other videos. You can you can just mention it on Twitter, on Facebook, even among people in real life. You can share with them that there's this great presentation that I've watched. You know, I'm wondering what do you think about this. You know, take a look at it. It's it's very comprehensive and it goes to a lot of detail. And um, you know, taking this from a neuroscience perspective, not a new argument, but but it's definitely presented. Probably this is definitely the best presentation of the argument out there, because we have you know clips from other people. Uh, Abdul Gondal has gone into tafsirs, hadith, sira, literature, even defining the words in Arabic. So to the point where you can't even, you know, the, immediately, you know, you have a presentation. Someone's going to say, oh, that's not what it means. Well, mm -hmm. take a look at what Lisan al-Arab or, you know, um, Lane's lexicon says. And so it's all there. It's all right there for you. There's a lot of content. You know, I'm going to try to make some clips. Um, and as well, if you'd like to donate, there's a there's a link below. Click on um, in the description for the two Abdullahs. After the stream is done, we'll be adding references. We'll be adding um, not subtitles because it's so long, but like there'll be we're going to timestamp the most important uh, timestamps so you can go through and you can jump to what you're looking for um, if you want to share with someone else. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, for those of you who are subscribers, thank you for being subscribers. Thank you for helping the channel get back to where it was before. You know, in, in no time, I think we'll be back to 60, 70,000. Uh, we couldn't do it without you guys. Any of, you know, all of you are so precious to keeping this going, right? It's it's definitely, you know, we're doing this for you. And without you, we wouldn't be here. So Thank you so much for, for that. Another thing I'd like to add that I will be uh, releasing the slides. I think we have one more part to go. Hopefully we'll be done this in the next part, the whole thing. I will uh, release the slides for you guys. And then I am doing this in Urdu uh, in a couple of months. I just want to finish the English version first. Uh, 
and then uh, I'll be taking a break for a while because this took a lot out of me to create this thing. And I'm going to work on condensing it. Like you guys said that, I mean, nobody's going to want to watch 20 hours of me sitting and talking. So we're going to try to condense all of this. We can take like maybe top five, three hadiths of each aspect or symptom and condense it into a either a mini video series or a documentary. We'll see about that. Uh, but yeah, I will definitely be releasing the slides. Additionally, I'm releasing uh, Dr. Dedek Kurkut's half of his book, well, the relevant parts that I've scanned, like 60 pages or so. And then also be releasing the PDF of uh, Dr. Abbas Sadiqiyab's book. I didn't feature his book in the presentation because he's on video talking. And most of the points from Dedek Kurkut and Abbas Sadiqiyab kind of overlap, so I didn't even want to make it redundant. But you can read both. Another disclaimer was that... Uh, <clears throat> So these two experts, they wrote their stuff independently and converged on the same conclusion. Uh, the one thing is like they are obviously going to slightly not agree with each other. Another thing is that Dr. Abbas and Dr. Didikurkut uh, even did their in-depth research because they're not of, uh, of less than Islamic uh, uh, scholarly background. They were only doing a very uh, kind of like tip of the iceberg a scan of the the corpus of the hadith but and they didn't even know the full uh, depth of it and so i was able to dive more into depth so if anything you can add to their uh their their arguments or their books using my uh, video uh, but there's a lot more things you'll find in the videos that you might not find in their books uh because again i've included uh, multiple different sources uh, as well but yeah that is all from my side guys uh Again, we will see you in the next one. I will try to get uh, Brother Rashid to maybe join us. We might have like a special reaction panel. We might try to get Dr. Abbas Adrian to possibly come join us live. Mm -hmm. uh, he's still actually a practicing clinical neuropsychologist. Uh, I don't want to say where he is, but uh, you can find him. <laughs> I'm going to get him involved, see if he can. I still don't know who the actual guy is who wrote Dr. Dede Kurkut's book, as in like it's a pen name. I know he's a neurologist. I just got to find, I have a little bit of a hand. I have to find that guy uh, and see if he can get those people mm. on as well. But yeah, we can even have a whole panel, Ali Rizvi and a few people. But anyways, that's yeah, all for me. Let's, uh, once we've done this, you know, um, we should, we'll take callers again and we'll try to um, get some more interactive, you know, content here. Mm. Um, there's just a few comments. Um, Alimi, Birakma, sorry if I mispronounce your name, said, love the work you have put into this. My relative getting into a cult brought me here. Oh, wow. And she also said, uh, here she also said, now I'm also questioning my own beliefs. So that's great. I mean, it's a sign of emotional and intellectual maturity and humility to be able to question mm -hmm. one's beliefs. And, you know, it's something that we should, you know, constantly do from time to time and, you know, reflect on whether, the, you know, what a, a beliefs are, you know, jiving with reality as we, as we see it. Um, few last things and then we'll end uh da, 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 da. um would you do a similar analysis on yuan yon ridley she claimed to see especially blessed taliban leader with nur on his face she saw this while feeling for her life after three days in a dark room i don't know her case exactly but this could be a bunch of things it could Stockholm, be right? like this yeah stockholm syndrome like she's fearing for her life so she, her brain's gonna try to see the captor in a positive yeah. way to ensure survival. 
Uh, a neuron on her, his face could just be because she was in a dark room. So she's more <laughs> light. It's not actually that he has neuron on his face. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I might look into it. I'll see. Uh, there is other people saying do it for all the other biblical prophets. And <laughs> it's possible because we don't know enough in detail about their lives to be able to make a, a, a certain idea of what was going on with them. But with Muhammad's case, we know, in fact, quite a bit. Uh, but yeah, let's see if we can do some other projects like that. <laughs> yeah, all right, and that's it. We're going to end on that. Uh, Leo J says, great, long live show. You two, Abdullah's input, some great wisdom. So thank you. Thank you, Leo. Thank you, everyone. And uh, we will see you next week. Uh, until then, uh, bye for now. Science Hafiz.